1: That's right, Whistler, welcome to episode 173 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, second airborne division of podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at... SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here, let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman, and with me like the thrum of a Star Destroyer's engines in space, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuities, Mr. Nathan P.
2: Butler. Hey folks, so I guess the appropriate uh, response to that introduction would be to say, let's get ready to rumble, right? Was Rumbling playing. your seats.
1: <laughs> I mean, dude, it's one of the, the things I really enjoy about the audiobooks. I'm like, ooh, I can tell I'm in space.
2: Exactly. Exactly. I like, um, I, I, I love the 3D films that you can get now on Blu ray, right? Because I've got that PlayStation branded 3D TV, which makes for a cool experience. But my sound system is still pretty basic. I've got this, like, $60, or whatever it was, sound system that I got, believe it or not, at Kroger when they were selling around Christmas time, they just randomly started selling stuff that had nothing to do with Kroger stuff, usually. Uh, And it's a nice set, and it gives good sound, but you don't get that whole, like, 3D sound effect where you've got the feeling of it coming from behind and the sides and all that kind of stuff. It's more of a, uh, a, just a solid stereo. So, I don't get the 3D sound effect, and that's what I want. I mean, when the Star Wars films get released the next time around, uh, hopefully with the 3D incarnations of the prequels, being released finally, since they have been made, they have been shown. That's what I want, I want, like a nice 3D sound system so that I get the rumble from all around and the depth of what I'm seeing on the screen. But, yeah, I got a feeling that's going to cost me a crap ton of money. <laughs> yeah.
1: And start shoveling out the cash.
2: Quite so. Speaking of shoveling out the cash, I guess some introductory stuff as we're getting in here. Uh, I did shovel out some cash recently for Wave 1 of the Star Wars Armada expansion packs. So, for those who are interested in Star Wars Armada, that new miniatures game, I've put up videos on YouTube. It's uh, YouTube.com, of course. The username, or so slash user slash uh, Chrono Radio, C H R O N O R A D I O, my old podcast name. But basically, I've gone through as they've come in and done like I did with X Wing, which is just basically to open them up, lay out all the different bits and pieces in it, show what you get for your money, and slightly touch on you know my thoughts on it, although not heavily in depth on the use in the game and that sort of thing but it's a freaking gigantic wave i mean we're talking like a couple of forty dollar ships a thirty dollar ship i want to say it was like four other products that were like twenty bucks a ten dollar dice pack. it's a freaking huge wave but you've got a victory class starter store your gladiator class star destroyer, your star starfighter little packs for both sides um, uh, Nebulon B and Corellian Corvette, which were those in the victory were the, basically what you got in the core set, and then this Assault Frigate Mark II that almost looks like it should be out of Destiny. Uh, I mean, it's a lot of stuff, and it's a really good game. It's more complex than X-Wing, but not as crazy complex as Imperial Assault. So if you're into like space combat miniature games, it's a cool one to check out, and all those videos hopefully will help people who are... You know, trying to decide what fits within their budget to buy to know which ones that they might actually think are worth shelling out the cash for, especially since this time, you know, unlike X-Wing, where if you bought something that was from the core set, like if you bought an X-Wing, you got the same miniature as was in the core set, but you got all these new pilots to go with it, which sort of changed the dynamic of how you play because it's really all about the pilots and their unique abilities. In this case, the ships are the same. The cards that come with the ships are the same as far as the ship's stats, and it's more like your upgrade cards that are different. It's not nearly as diversified between what you get in the core set and when you buy an expansion pack of the same type of ship. So I think it's going to be a real big deal when it comes to people being able to decide money-wise. And apparently it's helpful because I think the YouTube channel just passed like a thousand viewers finally, which is nice.
1: Yeah, now... Is your table that you made for the X-Wing, is that what you're using to play this on? Or has it got a different surface that you're using? How does that work?
2: Um, uh, it's It's going to depend. Um, I, I tried it out without using just a regular, like, set amount of space like you're supposed to do. Just because I wanted to just get a feel for the dynamics of how the ships moved and whatnot. It uses a bigger playing surface, though. So I'm going to have to see if the size of my actual playing surface that I made will work if I use, because the way I built the playing surface is, think of it as a rectangle. The playing space for X-Wing is a square, but I've got an extra foot or half a foot on either side so that you can have a place to put your cards and everything. So you get a place to lay out all your little tokens and all that kind of thing beside it. Mm -hmm. I think I can use that same piece if I want to, or use the one that I've got cut to identical size that's not painted or anything, but I wouldn't have any extra space on the sides. It expects you to use a bigger playing surface for this, and and that I think is a, a troublesome thing. Anybody who thinks they're just going to get this game and play it on a standard, you know, dining room table is going to be kind of out of luck when it comes to having a surface the size it's supposed to be. Could you play it without that size surface? Oh yeah, absolutely. But not anything that's going to be tournament legal, of course. And you run the risk of having. You know, Having certain truncated things are going to make things a little bit more difficult if you're dealing with a less-than-standard-sized space. It it does take up more surface area to play. I almost think that this would be something – I might just take those play mats, those X-Wing play mats that I got, lay them out on the floor, and Mm. use that instead of even trying to have an actual playing surface on a table or something because at least that way – I know my floor is big enough. You yeah.
1: Know? Well, that was going to be my next question is, is will the pieces fit on carpet? Well, or is it something that that if you're going to be playing it on the floor, it's only best to play it on a hard floor?
2: It's I mean, it depends on your carpet. There's, you know, the very solid carpet. And then, of course, you've got the carpet that's more uh, uh, fluffy for yeah, lack the of, of a better term, kind of shag like <laughs> yeah. um, they're all right. I mean, they've got the the bases on the Starfighters are round and flat very much like the square and flat bases for X-Wing. But the ones for the bigger ships are actually, they're like four prongs. It's almost like table legs on the piece because the bottom base piece actually has all your shield dials built into it so it looks a little different than X-Wing could use. And those, I think, would work well. The trouble with it is making sure that you're accurately moving. If you're playing with just buddies, and you're not super competitive, and it doesn't matter if you're slightly off by a couple of millimeters in a movement. Yeah, whatever, no big deal. Tournament-wise, though, when it's, you know, uh, are you exactly accurate in your movements because a couple millimeters off one way or another could make the difference on whether your enemy is within your firing arc or not type of thing. I don't think it would work. I think you have to have a hard surface for it just to make sure that your movements are, you know, perfectly accurate um, for just the sake of fairness, you know. Interesting. I guess the other update uh, before we get into the next chunk of feedback here is uh, we were discussing before the show a topic that came up a couple of episodes ago, which we had some chances to ask questions about and whatnot that really can't be delved too much into. But we went back and sort of revisited this whole question of Dark Disciple. Because Dark Disciple is based on previous Clone Wars scripts that were unproduced, does it get the same treatment as Darth Maul's Son of Dathomir? And Mark's approach to it was to say, based on things he was hearing at Celebration, which was, they keep promoting this as canon, 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 never mentioning it as part of Legends. So, because it's not coming from Dark Horse the way Son of Dathomir did, where it was going to be automatically Legends, and they had to sort of bring it over into canon, This is something already coming into canon, so they would have to make sort of a conscious effort to say, let's copy it over into Legends because it's part of Clone Wars if they were going to do that. Um, And since they haven't mentioned it, that it looks like it's just going to be canon. It'll be part of that one continuity instead of part of both the way Son of Dathomir was. My approach to it was essentially to say, well, but it's Clone Wars. And what we were told at the time of Son of Dathomir was, well, it's unproduced Clone Wars scripts. We're going to count it as if it's part of the show. And so the show exists in both, right, it existed in both, it influenced both before there was that cutoff of saying, you know, we're not going to continue Legends beyond, you know, the Old Republic, for instance, that if it's going to be that treatment for Son of Dathomir, it would make sense for that treatment to also be for Dark Disciple, regardless of whether Legends is continuing to expand, regardless of which canon is taking precedence at the moment, that if Son of Dathomir exists in both because it's part of the Clone Wars, because Clone Wars does, so should Dark Disciple, and I think it's just a question of where we put the emphasis on when trying to determine that. Is it about the current status of Legends versus Canon and the publishing line? Or is it about just that inclusion within the Clone Wars? And the more we talked about it, the more that we looked into it, the more it seems as though the safer bet is actually to go with Mark's approach, I think, for when I'm looking at the Star Wars timeline gold. Because there really hasn't been any mention of it as being something that would carry over into Legends, and it is getting that unusual position of, unlike Son of Dathamir, it's coming out straight into canon. It's not coming out into Legends. I look back on some of the ways that it was described to me why it was that Son of Dathomir coming out as Legends was able to also carry over into canon, and it was that whole, well, it's all copied and pasted the same way as you would copy and paste Clone Wars, you'd copy and paste over the live action films from legends to Canon. And that explanation doesn't necessarily fit some of the way that they worded it with dark Cyber. So the thought process right now is I'd love for it to be both. And I think realistically it could be part of both. Although surely it's going to mess up even more of Quinlan Vos and Asajj Ventress, you know, just mm. like the Clone Wars kind of ran through it like a freaking train. Um, but for now, I guess the only rational, reasonable, fair approach to take that won't mislead people would be to go with just putting it into canon unless they turn around and say it could be both. I hope that they would at some point, but yeah, I think that uh, Mark was on the right track there as opposed to like mine was more, I guess mine's more not so much wishful thinking so much as trying to apply old rules to new things. And the more that we kind of got into the weeds with it, the more it seems like those rules don't necessarily apply or may not apply, at least in this case, simply because we're in that time where the rules have changed. And it just so happens that one of these was released on one side of the change and one released on the other side of the change, even though it doesn't feel like it's been that long. So uh, I'm deferring to Mark on this. I'm going to stick it in story group canon, but I'm going to leave it out of Legends and just hope that someday they'll give us a nod to... Carried over with the rest of clone wars
1: yeah i look at it like uh april 2014th was like you know the event and you know son of Dathomir was the special case you know of the event where it crossed the line and you know, the fact that they weren't just they weren't making any mention of that as well and then and like i said in that one episode the bad batch stuff you know someone had asked about that and then filoni was very hesitant to say anything about it whatsoever and what he did say he says it stayed in this room so i mean they're definitely had this feel that there are going to be some more announcements down the road of some form or fashion, something more official because anytime you try to get any kind of clarification, it is really, you know, they're hesitant to say much right now. And it seems like, you know, they want to say more. And I was just interviewing some people, the 501st uh, at a star Wars day event here in grants pass and just hearing some of the stuff that they were talking about from their behind the scenes things, you know, they were getting emails from, uh, their new, new person in charge and stuff. And some of the new things that Disney wants to do. And I'd heard some of this stuff was already in effect at celebration. Like they can't point guns at heads and things like that. And I don't know how long that rule was, but that was some news coming down. that They're very strict on and stuff like that. And a lot of little things. So it's like, They're kind of holding their breath and waiting to see what's going on. I know podcasters and stuff now that Disney's in control, we're like, well, you know, are they going to be like, oh, you can't use that music and stuff. There's a lot of different rules and stuff that have changed that haven't yet affected fandom. And then there are some that have that, you know, like, like what's going on with these books that have affected us, but we still don't really know the full ramifications. But yeah, it just seemed to be that they're at Celebration, that the big push was all on the new canon. And they would always mention, you know, Legends is still in their mind, but it was just like, they had that opportunity that if Dark Disciple was in both, that would have been a prime opportunity to do what they did with Son of Dathomir and be like, and, and see, this is still coming out. And they and they didn't take that opportunity. and That really stuck with me, you know?
2: Yeah, and that's the thing that really kind of was the nudge in that direction for me was this looking at it saying, wow, they really haven't touched that at all. You would think if it's a special case like that, they would have said something because Star Wars Celebration, that was where people were asking those questions. And it – Seems like that never came up, at least not that I had heard about. But you mentioned has two things that stand out to me. One, uh, about how it seems like they're playing things close to the chest. I think we see that with, with our personal interactions. I, uh, as, as the audience knows, for a while there, I was emailing back and forth on continuity issues with Leland Chi from time to time. Uh, in fact, he had emailed me asking for my thoughts on the, the dates of what eventually became those The Old Republic uh, history videos on their website before they came out. Uh and we've gone back and forth a little bit, but it got to a point after the Disney acquisition where, you know, unless it's a PR thing, unless it's already approved ahead of time, he really can't answer those questions for public consumption anymore. Um uh to be able to be used, say, on the Star Wars Timeline Gold to help, you know, identify why something is the case or confirm why something is the case. Which I guess is good for Wikipedia, right? Because they would never accept, you know, hey, Leland told me this as a as a source even if it was confirmed. Um But now, it's sort of, uh, it's it's kind of a broader stroke thing, and I haven't really talked to him all that much, but I've started speaking a lot more with Pablo Hidalgo from time to time, and in his case, it's sort of the automatic assumption, you know, I can ask the questions, and we can discuss the things for the clarity, but it's all sort of for clarity in my mind, and, and my own, as he calls it, personal edification, to be able to know that I'm moving in the right direction on things, but answer's not necessarily fit for public consumption. So we, it can't be, hey, Pablo, here's this thing that we're concerned about. Um, what's the answer to it? Turn around and, hey, guys, this is the answer, unless it's been made publicly, in which case generally he'll say, you know, well, as we revealed at celebration or as, you know, whatever. So it's it's interesting. It's like there's more of a control over the message, even when it's on things that are more just about clarity of things that already exist. And I wonder if that is a a reaction to how haphazard things got for a while there in the Legends continuity. Back at a time when people were using the word canon in four or five different ways and what it supposedly meant, quasi-canon, this, that, and the other, and how you were in a situation where, especially before they revealed the the system, the letter-based canon system from the Holocron, that... There was a lot of confusion and a lot of conflicting statements until they finally had to come out and publicly say, this is what we are using. And even then, it was a, this is what we're using for our own internal classification, and immediately it became, okay, so what level of canon is this? What level of canon is this? Well, it was meant for us when we're building the stories, not necessarily – for fans to be labeling, but we latched on it, and it became this huge thing in fandom, too. So, I can see why they want to play it close to the chest, but it is sort of a frustrating thing in that it seems like, you know, there are questions that either go unanswered or can't be publicly answered. So, I don't know. I don't know if that's a better thing or not. I like the fact that there's a more unified message, but at the same time... We need a way of asking those kinds of questions. Like there needs to be like a Twitter feed or there needs to be Mm -hmm. a Facebook page or something where you can ask those questions like we could for uh, Leland's Holocron Keeper page and that sort of thing where they are speaking with that authority. They are able to put it out there because they know the answer unless the fear is that the answers might change behind the scenes and they just don't know. Maybe it is, hey, what about Dark Disciple? Well, right now it's canon. Maybe later we're going to say that it's Legends or maybe right now it's both and later we're going to say it's one. You know, whatever. But – Maybe there there's a concern that if they put out an answer and they decide to change it later that it's just gonna lead to confusion. But surely with the story group planning ahead, there shouldn't be that many instances of that sort of thing, you wouldn't think. Well, and there's already
1: so much confusion. I mean, you know, when when I put the ponder out as I was editing the episode, I, I just dropped it down on the Facebook page, you know, and, and and just generally asked, you know, what's your opinion? And a lot of people were coming back with, you know, not only that they thought it was canon, but there was also this little side debate as to whether or not the clone wars in the films themselves were legends They were like, no, it's only in Canon. It doesn't exist as legends. It's like, no, 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 it's in both. And, and it surprised me that, that so many people, like I had to really explain how it was in both. And, and you had mentioned it in the last episode, or, or I guess two episodes back about the whole copy and paste and how that works. And I think that's a, a brilliant, analogy for those who don't understand how you know the Clone Wars in the films can be EU and the Legends at the same time it was the bedrock that, that these stories are, are based off of the linchpin you know
2: well yeah I mean you can't have the Star Wars Legends continuity without having Return of the Jedi Empire Strikes Back you know the prequels etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, you can't have Fate of the Jedi without having the Clone Wars with the Ones and the Mortis trilogy no matter how much I despise that arc and so on um that, and, they, and they said that early on, you know, of course it's going to be part of both, uh, all the timelines you would see would have that as part of both, but it's just that essentially the old T and G canon have been lifted and became the core of something new also, instead of just being in the Legends continuity, but everything else, another way to think of it is the story group canon, or whatever you want to call it, is the G-T-C-S-N canon structure with the C S N dropped is another way of looking at it, cut out of the mix, leaving that core behind. Um, The other thing that you mentioned that I found uh, funny, I guess, as a a note to end on here before we get into the feedback, is the whole thing about Stormtroopers in the 501st not being able to put guns to people's heads in the costuming group. Um, I think that we may have just gotten another reason for why Stormtroopers are so freaking unable to actually defeat our heroes they apparently can't go for headshots. (laughs) (laughs) we've heard the thing now right about uh how apparently they've confirmed that daniel craig james bond is going to be playing a stormtrooper perhaps just a stormtrooper in armor that you never see the face of in uh, the force awakens right the joke is that he may be the only stormtrooper that can always hit his target
1: nice well and i heard that that the confirmation on that is because simon Pegg let it slip Oh, oh i was supposed
2: to say that yeah loose lips loose lips man Loose lips from a guy who bashed Star Wars and now is all like, it's wonderful, now that he's been brought into it. Simon Pegg, ladies and gentlemen.
1: Yep, hey, fandom's all-inclusive, baby. Ah, yeah, and haters gotta hate. It's a a, a form of comedy, right?
2: (laughs) Haters gonna hate, hate, hate. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I got that shake it off thing in my head. There's a wonderful big band. Like literally, like there's a group that i got, I think it's called postmodern jukebox that does big band in like 1920s and sometimes 1950s era style remakes of modern pop hits. Like they've got one of a gangster's paradise. Nice. And kinda kinda like just, how, uh,
1: uh, Richard Chi does it mm-hmm. with lounge music.
2: Yeah, like with Richard Chi's in the, la- yeah, exactly. Uh, so there's a Shake It Off that's just, look it up on, uh, YouTube. If nothing else, it's hilarious just because it's a guy singing it and the guy singing it just, <laughs> he does not look like he should be singing Shake It Off. It's funny. <laughs> uh, but he's, he's really good at it, but you're just watching it like going, really? That's, huh. And there are points where you're like, that was a guy's voice. <laughs> So we are now off into the weeds. So I guess it's time to tell us what this show is about.
1: Well, here at Stars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we focus on your feedback. Once more, your emails take center stage. Now consider this your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of all ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films.
2: That's right, and we covered quite a bit of feedback from different people in the last couple of episodes, and we have two people who gave us a lot of feedback, some of which is audio. Audio. That we wanted to use separately as our third and fourth feedback episodes here. Uh, we have dropped some of the feedback that came in just from the span of time. And the fact that we've got you know some of these comments going back to things that have been so long ago. That there are things in them that aren't necessarily as relevant now as uh, some of these other ones happen to be. So if you haven't heard the feedback, feel free to send more feedback. It's just it may have been that it took us so long to get to it that the relevance of what was being said was probably going to be lost, perhaps, on those who are listening new or those um, who don't remember what was said three or four or five months ago. So this time, we have quite a bit of feedback coming in from Andrew Gilbertson, a name that our listeners hopefully know at this point in terms of the feedback that he sends in and, of course, uh, his involvement in podcasting and the Star Wars Marvels uh, audio drama project and whatnot that's out there. Andrew says in his first in. A series of emails we're going to hit here before we uh, also get to his audio version. He says, in an email with the subject, new post-Return of the Jedi EU. Hey there, Mark and Nathan. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the recent announcement about the Journey to the Force Awakens. For me, who, as you know, has struggled with optimism and misery since the whole Legends thing came down, it's about the worst news imaginable. It feels like we're having the entirety of the post-Return of the Jedi EU replaced by essentially a tie-in event, similar to Star Trek 2009's Countdown Comics. I hope it'll still be good, but it kind of feels wrong to replace a decade's worth of publishing to a single event tie-in slash lead-up, especially because, as such comic prequels have often shown, the stories tend not to have strong identities of their own or be able to capture the tone of the products to come because they're being made on pre-release information. This is definitely not what I'd like to have seen for the inevitable Legends replacement. I'd rather see those years being filled in by stories written on their own merit, piece by piece, rather than being treated as a sort of throwaway single block to be merchandised revolving around a new film. And maybe that isn't what's actually happening. Wouldn't be the first time that I've overreacted. It just feels like a disrespectful way to handle the new EU, undervaluing what a lot of people treasured and replacing it in a perfunctory haphazard way. We've lost the Thrawn trilogy, the X-Wing novels, and all the rest, and it feels like a 20-book series of Tatooine ghosts or survivors' quests are being drafted in to replace them, stories that exist only to set up or reference other stories. I don't think you can end up with a Last Command-level classic that way. Now, maybe that isn't how it's really going down, but first announcement, that's how it feels, alienating to EU fans who are willing to see the era replaced, since they have no choice, but want to see it done with care. Detail and strong storytelling, not as marketing filler quickies to pave the way for a new movie. Hopefully, it'll be that good. Hopefully, these authors working in secret still came up with some strong stories. I'll certainly check them out. The other possible issue is treating the era as a rush job prologue to a single film, which, much like those The Phantom Menace tie in comics about various members of the Jedi Council that ended up meshing badly with the ongoing films, feeling limited in scope and being badly dated, by all tying into characters and scenarios exclusive to the first film that had no relevance for the later films, felt like this weird little cul-de-sac of irrelevance, made before the direction of the new series was actually determined, seems like it's rife with potential to be largely throwaway. Remember all those video games and magazines and everything that treated Naboo Starfighters as major pieces of the universe? or put Malastare, Naboo, and Tatooine in repeated prominent positions as if they were cornerstones of the universe just because they were name-dropped in The Phantom Menace? And how silly and irrelevant, or at the very least badly dated, those things feel now, knowing that these elements were mentioned-slash-prominent in just The Phantom Menace and didn't really play a larger role in the tapestry of the prequels as a whole? Again, hopefully this is a pitfall they've avoided. It's just disappointing to see the possibility for that same problem seeded all throughout the new EU. By this all at once before anyone's even seen the movie approach. Either way, with any luck, they'll still have significant gaps that can be filled in with more considered benefit of retrospect stand on their own and not as tie-in stories. And with any luck, the ones they do produce will have more depth, story quality, standalone value, and relevance than similar products for Star Wars, Star Trek, the Superman films, etc. have in the past. I just have trouble maintaining my optimism that way. Rebels is keeping my fandom alive but the original trilogy era that I love seems to just keep taking the hits otherwise. How about you guys? I know that you typically try to put a positive spin on things. Is there a silver lining that I'm missing? Or do all the potential pitfalls bear every portent that I fear that they do? Not impossible to succeed, but certainly not set up for success. Still waiting to see whether they're entering the golden age or the dark times, Andrew Gilbertson. You know, the
1: whole golden age and dark times thing, you're not alone there. I mean, I was talking to other members of the 501st and fans of the original trilogy and stuff. And they were talking about, you know, other members that were selling their old armors to get the new, uh, uh, Envos, uh episode seven armor kits. Uh, and you know, my friend Alan was like, you know, I don't know. Like, you know, I'm, I think I'm okay with sticking with my rebel and my TK and, you know, like, cause he loves the OT era. And so he's, you know, He's a Star Trek fan, too. So he's very aware of what Abrams has done with that franchise. So he's in that same boat where, you know, he wants to be excited. He's, you know, very excited at the moment, but he's also holding his breath as to whether or not this might be that dark time coming. You know, maybe it's not going to go in a direction he would want to wear that armor. And so he's looking at his friends that are selling their old kit and he's just like, you know, you may end up regretting that you don't know at this point. Uh, you know, As for the journey to The Force Awakens, uh, that's 20 books that are all going to be dropping on September 4th, which is also the same day the toy line for The Force Awakens launches. It's that whole new Star Wars TFA day or whatever they're calling it. Uh, but of those 20 books coming out, when they had the, the Star Wars at Delray panel, uh, Jennifer Heedle had said that only about six to seven of those books are going to be adult-type fiction or, or books that have really – uh, good depth to it. You know, most of them are going to be story uh, books, little tiny kids books and sticker books. So they're going to have very little content to it might have a character here or there, you know, but not really be fleshing anything, adding thing that people feel like they need to have. She so said there'll be about six or seven of those that do, which in that regard, you know, I was like, okay, well, that's not so bad. I was thinking like 20 books. That's a lot to, to digest, but at least they're giving you, you know, from September 4th to December 18th, that gap there to kind of digest the books. So I, I like that. I mean, I think about you know when uh, Revenge of the Sith came out, the book dropped one month before, you know, and, and so we were able to see that going into it. Uh, and, and you mentioned a lot of stuff with the Phantom Menace and, and how those tie ins so not quite line up now. Which I think now that we got this new canon, I'm I'm hoping that that's not going to be the case. I'm hoping that the journey, of the Force Awakens, is part of what they did back then, uh, because it does seem like it's not that they're replacing all of Legends right now. It just seems like it's a lead up event to the movie to kind of give you the, the, the little bits of backstory that you think you need. Uh, and even then Jennifer had mentioned that when you get to the point where you're sitting down December 18th in the chair, most of the stuff you've read in the book isn't going to mean anything to you until you're watching the, the film. And then you're like, Oh, okay, Oh, kind of stuff like the, the, the clicking parts aren't going to click and you're not going to be able to really guess it until you're sitting there watching the film. And then the stuff you've read is going to fall into place. Uh, so I, I really get the feeling that this is more like, you know, one of those uh, uh, Shadows of the Empire kind of events, you know, like like they're really focusing and building in on that. They didn't say whether or not during the 20 books, if it's, you know, going from Return of the Jedi and it's it's a five year gap and there's a story kind of story kind of story kind of stuff. Nothing in that regard. So, you know, we do know that, that uh, some of the books are going to be in it like Aftermath, the uh, Twilight Company, which is the uh, Battlefront story. Uh, and, and aftermath, I believe, is a trilogy. But they didn't say whether or not the second and third book are going to be part of those twenty books that are being dumped. So you know, there's still a lot of questions as to how the 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 new EU or the new book side of things, because it's all canon now. But how the book side of things is going to grow? I mean. Are they gonna really start fleshing it out and build out multiple eras? Are they gonna focus in one end and kind of do like the New Jedi Order, where you know it fills out one era and then they move on to another series of books and stuff in that era, you know, versus filling out like five different directions. You know, you know they're gonna be doing Rebel stuff still, so that era is kind of filled out. I don't really see anything happening with the Clone Wars anymore. I, I mean, that is kind of told a huge chunk already, uh, but they're not doing anything in the old Republic eras type stuff because those eras aren't really there yet I mean we still don't even know how the siths are going so it's like they didn't say anything about if they're going to go and flesh those out so it definitely has that shadows of the empire we're doing it for this kind of thing you know so I I don't think we're going to get that phantom menace it doesn't line up or why the heck is Malastare here kind of feel or if it does I, I think that's only because they're really focusing on the fact that this is leading into that movie so maybe in the long run some of these stories will feel like they don't connect to the overall stuff, but I think that's going to come down to whether or not if the story group is telling their story well enough and if they're doing their job down the road. You know, we won't be able to tell if if it's never referenced again until the the next books just don't reference it. I mean, that's one of the things that really ticks me off with the new Jedi Order is when you go into darkness and you go into the series that follow. Coruscant doesn't have the feel that it had at the end of. Uh, unifying force you know i mean it was totally reshaped it was it was a whole new place and yet after that series they kind of just beat around the bush and never really went there again so as long as they avoid doing that you know not referencing stuff and finding ways to keep those events like tied in as they should be not forced in i think they'll be doing a good job
2: you know a couple things kind of side notes here for andrew before the my the bulk of my response to that Uh, One, Andrew and I've I've seen emails coming in from Andrew for Rebels Roundtable. We haven't done a feedback episode of that series yet. Uh, But I'm very glad that Andrew is taking the plunge and checking out Rebels because I was afraid that that he'd be someone who might have been more resistant to that series and less likely to get into it and enjoy it than uh, those who are a little bit less taken aback by the Legends change and everything. But I, I think it's been a great series, and I... Now, I'm kind of keeping this in mind, I, I hope we do do a feedback episode at some point for Rebels Roundtable because it'd be interesting to get his thoughts on that as well. Because um, I know that they're sitting there in the email just in case that were to come around. Secondly, um, the reference was made there to – that Mark made there to J.J. Abrams and what he has done to Trek, right? You know, Trek 2009, it was the Star Trek film that Star Wars fans had been waiting for. The tonal shifts were pretty huge in – Abrams' version of Trek versus the classic Trek. And I actually – I didn't mention this earlier in the show. Usually I mention new projects I'm working on. I got contacted and referenced actually. Uh, Rich Hanley, who I'm working with on those articles for his book series with Sequart, had recommended me to a guy named Ed Gross, who's the editor of Movie Magic magazine. And they asked me to write an article, which has actually already been submitted. It's only about a two thousand, twenty-two hundred 2,200-word article um, that will be in the magazine in the lead-up to The Force Awakens. And one of the things he wanted to cover was things like, well, what does J.J. J. Abrams bring to the plate relative to, say, what Lucas brought in? How can we expect these films to be approached differently, perhaps, than the prequels and, and that sort of thing? And with Abrams, so far I actually am very hopeful about what he's going to bring to the plate. I liked his Star Trek films. Uh, I like his storytelling style. And in particular, I think it's, it's important to note that J.J. Abrams is one guy among a team. He is not the creator of Star Wars. He's creating more with Star Wars, but he's not the original creator. So you don't have this thing like with Lucas where, you know, in... A New Hope, he kind of did his own thing, but he had this grand vision that he had refined and refined and refined. With Empire and Jedi, he had other screenwriters come in and other directors come in to help him. But with the prequels, he kind of just did whatever the hell he wanted to do, right? He was the writer. He was the director. And except for bringing in Jonathan Hales briefly to help him write on episode two, it was pretty much all him. And there was nobody there to tell him no when he was careening for excess, when he was heading for the wall. And smashing into it, it was all more like, George, you're great, that's awesome, let's see more, let's see more, let's see more. It's supposed to be somebody saying, no, dude, that doesn't work. And Abrams being part of a team now, uh, not being the creator that, you know, somehow you can't say no to, I think is going to mean that it's a more refined experience, very much like the original trilogy was. As for his main point about the books, I want to read something to you. And this is also something that I found important enough that I quoted in its entirety in that article. The Death Star has been destroyed. Rumors are flying that the Emperor and his enforcer, Darth Vader, are dead. A new government is forming to replace the Empire. But the galaxy is a big place, and the fallout of this cataclysm will affect different worlds in different ways. Has everyone accept the fall of Imperial rule? Has everyone even heard the life-altering news? What rushes in to fill the vacuum the Empire has left, and who will try to stop them? Those are some of the themes that will be explored in Aftermath, according to Star Wars Insider. I think that what we're getting with this first burst is it's going to be different, I think, than what we got with, say, The Phantom Menace. Because with The Phantom Menace, it was, here's this whole new era that the books really haven't been allowed to touch. And we're just giving you stuff to help get you excited for it. But we're not necessarily building a bridge to anything because... You know, who knows what Lucas is going to wind up saying happened shortly before The Phantom Menace. So you wind up with the stuff that really sort of feels like fluff, and as Andrew was saying, it just grabbed little tidbits out of the film and used them to create these whole stories when really we didn't know a whole heck of a lot. I think this will be more like what we got with the Clone Wars books between Episodes 2 and 3, or things like, as Mark mentioned, Shadows of the Empire, where we have a defined beginning point, which is the end of Return of the Jedi, And now we need to know how do you get from there to the beginning of The Force Awakens, which is a defined end point. And at least that way they can start crafting something in between, more like Shadows of the Empire, where it's dealing with specific questions that we want to know, important matters, important character development beats, and that sort of thing. Um, That's not to say they haven't had some decent entries in these lead-in books before. I mean, Labyrinth of Evil* was a pretty good lead-in to get us out of the Clone Wars and into uh, Episode Three. But your point is well taken that a lot of times it does feel like these things are kind of fluff. Uh, uh, the approaching storm, you know, uh, just they feel like they're there only to make money and build off of the marketing scheme of the film as opposed to being something substantive on their own. I would like to think, though, that the other big difference is that there's a plan this time, or at least a known plan. Like, I don't think when Lucas was sitting around making the prequels that there was any real effort for him to say to Dark Horse, to Del Rey, um, to the video game makers, hey, by the way, this is where I'm going. And since this is where I'm going, here's what you can use in your stories to get to where I'm going. It was much more, here's the tidbits I'm going to let out about this publicly. Use that. And that was pretty much it, or just some very basic things for them to go on when creating the story. That's why, for instance, you get something like the Starfighter video games, right? We know these ships are going to show up, so build a story around someone flying one of those ships, will you, as a video game? Or we know pod racing will be there, so make these little pod racing games, why don't you? Um, but nothing substantive. Whereas in this case, in theory, the story group guiding this, they've got a plan going ahead. They know at least in broad terms, where things are heading, and they can craft these things so they're weaving in those elements, as Mark said, that maybe we don't even recognize are there and are important until we actually see the film. So I certainly have more hope for these than in the past with the movie tie-ins. Like, usually a month before a film came out, here's the dump of all the information, here's a dump of all the new books and everything, and it was a Yay, the new stuff is out! We can find out what's in the movie because they're releasing the novelization of it early and spoiling the frickin' movie for us! But, yeah, there's also The Approaching Storm. There's also this other tie-in book that's probably gonna be crap, but I gotta read it, because I'm a completist. I don't feel like that's the attitude going into this just yet. I do find it odd that they have so many coming out at once, but as Mark said, it's not really 20. It's more like a, a small smattering that are really gonna be... These substantial ones. And I'm hopeful they're going to go in a, in a positive direction. The story group has an opportunity here to do something Shadows of the Empire-esque rather than, you know, Cloak of Deception-esque. And I trust this group better at doing that and having more influence over that than of Lucas sharing back in the day with his licensees.
1: There are also, I believe there's going to actually be a little title header that says Journey to the Forest Awakens on the book. So, you know, it, it, it's curious that not all of the books have been announced. I mean, you know, we know they're coming September 4th. So I would assume here at some of these events that are coming up with Star Wars weekends, maybe some of the cons and stuff coming up, that we're going to start getting some title drops, some covers and things of that nature because September 4th is going to be on us before we know it.
2: I have like a kids book Kylo Ren and why he modeled his mask after Darth Revan Revan is my hero <laughs> something
1: like you that. know they could easily do something like that where you know it is some dark lord they never mention that it's Revan, but you're looking at the thing and you're like that's
2: clearly Revan." <laughs> it's funny because i i've talked before i think mostly on rebels roundtable about that cinema sins video series that i watch which is you know the everything wrong with and then it's a oh. certain movie and they did yeah. a version of that for the second the force awakens trailer and even in yep. that the, the, and the narrator goes, oh, hi, Darth Revan. Oh, or something like that. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. I, I When he said that, too, I was like, okay, good. I, I I thought I was alone. And when I brought it up on our page, everybody was like, yeah, i crack. It's not Revan. I'm like, I'm not saying it's Revan. I'm saying that it looks like it's Revan stripped down. Like, it looks like they've taken that character model and retooled it. Hey, that's what Dave Filoni's been saying all this time. I mean... That for me, I think is the one question about story group that I would love to have answered the most when it comes to JJ in this film, you know, is did the story group when they got JJ involved and they hired him did they say like, these are the five plot points we want? Or do they go, you know, this is the story that we want? Or do they go, you know, give us a story? Did he come to them with, with all these ideas? And and is like, this is the movie. Now you guys deal with it. You know, I get the feeling that they were the ones that were like, this is the story we need told and build it from there. And if that's the case, then I'm, I'm, I'm a lot more at ease all the way around, you know, but when I think about the fact that JJ may be doing his own movie and then be like, and this is what I've got. And then they have to run with it. I'm that's, that scares me, but they haven't said one way or the other. I mean, they haven't really told us much about how the story group exists, aside from very loose terms. And I mean, For the most part, all we know is they're basically George Lucas. I mean, you know, they get to pick and choose and do what they want. And in so many ways, they're they're George, you know, I mean, they've established there's the new canon. Well, George always said there was my canon and then there was all the other stuff. And and I don't know. I mean, the way that the story group itself works is probably one of the, the biggest secrets that they've been holding and one of the ones that I would think they would have came out with right away after they made the announcement back in April of 2014.
2: The first rule of the story group is you do not talk about story group. (laughs) Alright. Moving on. In a response particularly directed at our episode number 154, Andrew says, Guys, I must shamefully admit that I am catching up today on Star Wars Beyond the Films since before Christmas. What can I say? The year recaps don't throw me because I've usually heard the majority of it discussed individually on shows throughout the year. Mea culpa. I'm trying to keep more consistent. Anyhow, I just wanted to write in and mention that I really appreciated Mark's rant in number 154 vis-a-vis the prequels, the canon, and being lied to. It's a delicate balance of trying to maintain positivity. I know, to some folks you're haters. For others in Crisis like me, it can feel like the Sunshine Squad. Accepting any little old thing so long as some schmuck puts those eight letters S T A R W A R S on it somewhere. In reality, by the way, I think you guys strike a great balance. I'm just trying to articulate the mindset stump signs I get into here, not to imply that it's reality. Sorry, this email feels like it's filling up with backhanded criticisms. None of them are intended. I've also had difficulty on the net lately, particularly a guy on these forums claims he knows you, Nathan, but I have no idea who he is in reality. For what it's worth, I asked him about it, and we didn't know who the heck he was. That repeatedly accuses me of being a hater or troll for having a negative view of the prequel trilogy, despite his constantly ragging on the EU and how he's glad that it's dead. All in all, it sometimes felt like Doctor Who's The Happiness Patrol or The Twilight Zone's It's A Good Life around Star Wars fandom. Everyone must walk around with false smiles on their face, spewing false positivity, and not daring to express their angst lest they be castigated or ostracized. Heaven help the poor sap who can't muster a smile or loses composure once in a while. So it meant a lot to me to hear an honest, uncensored expression of that frustration pouring out, mirroring how I so often feel. I struggle with the same bipolarity and stages of grief about Star Wars. Some days, like after a new Rebels episode, optimistic and enthusiastic for where they're going. Other days, like after seeing a Battlestar Galactica-style documentary cam resume in the Force Awakens trailer, or remembering some new character-slash-event-slash-backstory that no longer exists in the new Star Wars, angry or mournful at what's gone. I think the positivity that you both try to present, so long as the product you're talking about doesn't have a Darth Vader and the affix to it, is important to helping fandom over a frustrating, jarring time. And though it may grate when I'm at my most frustrated, when I come to it with neutral, receptive ears, it does actively help me in the long, slow process of accepting the new status quo. But at the same time, the occasional break like this, the unvarnished emotional truth of how you feel, not just about some variant covers or marketing move that can be attributed to a single product, but about the franchise itself, is also a cathartic reminder that I'm not alone, that we don't all have to put on masks and pretend it's a happy day that the reminders toward positivity are still coming from people who understand and feel the frustrations I'm dealing with. Sometimes that the average, see, we should all get over legends because the EU is actually dumb and contradicted itself and it was never considered canon and they aren't going to come and take your books off your shelf article, completely fails at. Because I know that the person telling me to get over it never really cared about it as much in the first place and thus aren't addressing or understanding someone like me. That reminder that I'm not alone, and that positivity can still come from fans that are in the same place as me, rather than only from those that simply dismiss the EU in the first place anyway, helps a lot. Andrew.
1: Man, I I just, I go back and forth so many times. It, it is hard. That's why I really adopted the whole bipolar Star Wars fan, because I, I will, I was just talking to my brother-in-law uh, yesterday, and I'm going back and forth with different things and explaining to him, you know, it's like, I'm so excited about all this stuff and and all these new options and and the new avenues and and the aspects that that the stories I love can be retooled in new ways and and be reused in different directions. But then I I look at my daughter, Jane, and I'm just like, you know, I want to know more about that character that I named my daughter after story. You know, I want to know you know did she become the first empress you know i mean how did it work was she the queen of the empire did she found the? you know just so many stories i still want to know about uh so yeah so i'm i'm i'm, I'm equally conflicted uh and, and there are times where i feel like i'm a complete broken record you know and, and I, i'm worried that i'm just pissing people off with my opinions uh you know it, it, it's just one of those things uh you know you see those posts like you were talking about uh that they're not coming to take it off your shelf and that stuff. And I, I'm right there with you. Another one that drove me nuts was it's recently you've seen the, uh, the fan theory about Palpatine building the Death Star. And it's basically the rogue planet plot. And it just like, rah, I'm like, that's not a fan theory. There's just so many different things that, that drive me nuts. And then there's so many things out there that have me just complete awe and, and, and at the edge of my seat. Um, and I don't know, Andrew, if you were able to get to Star Wars Celebration Anaheim, uh, but that was one of the things that, I, I really I felt like that was something I absolutely needed, and after coming away from that feeling like everybody needs to go and do one of those. If if any fan is on the fence, uh, and feeling like you know they're they're a hater or or people think they're a hater because of the things they say, uh, you know, go to one of these events and 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 really just have the Lazarus effect, man. I mean, it's it's so great to be in in crowds of people that. Agree and disagree like there were there were some times I was in lines with people that that did not like anyone that liked legends or EU they didn't want to hear about it at all and then you know right next to that would be a group of people that were just loving on it and were like this guy's crazy kind of thing but they weren't being dicks to each other which was the nice thing whereas on the internet people are just perceived as dicks Uh, you know not always are the things that I say in text meant to come across uh, dickish or cross themselves uh and yet then i'll I'll read them back like a day later, and I'm like, ooh that, that looks like a bad tone, like what the heck was I thinking? It's like no wonder people were misunderstanding what I was saying. It's like dang what the heck was I thinking when I texted that you know uh so so it, it's just one of those interesting things when you go to those places you know you're able to Look at everything you've been dealing with at home and stuff from the Internet, because I, I don't know if, if you exist that way. But with most of my fandom, it's shared with my friends online. Most of my around the town friends aren't as big into Star Wars as me. They're not like dying to get the next issue and stuff as I am. So I've got to deal with my friends online in that regard. And, and so you come across the maelstrom of Internet trolls and other people that, that just don't want to hear your opinion and stuff and, and it's just it's just a totally different experience. And so after coming back from celebration, I'm able to look at my natural life and the way I was experiencing things before because, you know, Nathan, while while we were there, you know, you put that post out about how you were thinking, you know, you, you weren't sure if you wanted to go on podcasting. And I know when I wasn't at the last two celebrations, you know, five and six, I felt that way. You know, I I, I, I had that I want to be at these events thing. You know, I'm, I'm having it right now, not being at Star Wars weekends. You no, know, Riley's there. Uh, you know, Trisha Barr, everybody and their dog is, is rushing over to, to Orlando right now and getting to do some more fun Star Wars stuff. And after going to Celebration, I'm like, ah, I really want to be there for that, too. So, yeah, I, I just I think, uh, you know, do it to yourself and find a way if you haven't get to one of these things. It, it's it's fun to be able to be around people that have like minds uh, and it's nice to know that that my rhetoric and my broken record is still appreciated.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think this is one of those things that I mean, it's it's that whole intellectual honesty thing in a lot of ways that we're just gonna be us, uh, as they, what's the 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 youngsters say these days? You do you or whatever it is, <laughs> uh, which sounds like a bizarre sexual thing to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> but this this idea that you know you kind of have to be yourself, I've learned over the years. I mean, we just passed my. Uh, 13th anniversary in Star Wars podcasting, and whether it's Chrono Radio, EU Review, Beyond the Films, or whatever, I've kind of learned that there's going to be people that, as Mark said, you know, haters are going to hate. There are going to be people who disagree no matter what you say, and it's more about doing the right thing. Uh, My Love, for instance, for Shakespeare came up recently. I was doing an interview with Lynn or Lenny Klein, who we heard in a previous feedback episode. I was going to be doing a series of articles with different Star Wars podcasters and whatnot. and We talked about that same concept, and a quote came up because I'm starting to get into Julius Caesar quite a bit now after being a huge Hamlet fan for years. And there's a line that I think uh, helps me with the mindset and understanding the mindset that I come from, which is uh, Brutus says after having killed Caesar, he says... Uh, If there be any in this assembly, any dear friend to Caesar's, to him I say that Brutus' love to Caesar was no less than his. If then that friend demand why Brutus rose against Caesar, then this is my answer. Not that I loved Caesar less, but that I loved Rome more. Had you rather Caesar were living and die all slaves than that Caesar were dead to live all free men? And I think it's that whole, just because we're critical, does not mean that we have less of a love of Star Wars than another fan who might not be critical. But we have that choice to make. Are we going to step up and be critical and be ourselves and be honest? Or put on the happy step for wives kind of faces, or step for husbands, I suppose, and just pretend everything's all hunky-dory all the time and basically kiss Lucasfilm's butt, like some podcasts out there that I wonder, you know, sometimes if they're able to see what Lucasfilm's people had for lunch because their heads are shoved so far up Lucasfilm people's asses. To me, that's not really much of a choice, right? You know, you could be loved and always positive, but not being honest with your true opinions and holding everything inside. Or you can be honest, and sometimes you're going to be critical and you're going to get blasted. That is actually the, the topic that's being used for my second article for that uh, that book series from Sequart. It's this idea that, you know, the, the books are going to be about deconstructing things and being critical and looking with a critical and critiquing eye at things and what worked and what didn't. But doing that is an aspect of love. You know, if you are, say, and Mark, you've talked before about uh, substance abuse issues and whatnot. If Mm -hmm. you have someone in your family who is self-destructing because of substance abuse, right? There's two different ways you could show that love. You could be supportive in them no matter what, right up until the point where they OD. Or you could show that support by being critical of them and staging an intervention, even if they will hate you for it for a while. Because you want to make their life and the lives of those around them better. That's what I used to refer to as being the loyal opposition. In fact, it was it's funny. When I was doing that interview with Lenny, I pulled out my binder, and we directly quoted what Jeremy Barlow said to me in 2004, March of 2004, when he invited me to write for Tales, And he referred to me as the loyal opposition, just this idea that it's appreciated that there are people out there willing to call them on things um, because – you want to make things better. And I think, I think of it now as intellectual honesty, but that's sort of what we want to do. Um, we are all about being honest, having fun with the conversation, playing devil's advocate from time to time. But we see the value in someone who loves something being willing to be critical to make it better. Whereas there are segments of fandom who think of anything critical as somehow being negative or being a hater. It's like... It's just like in politics, right? It's that polarized point of view that you have to be either for or against something. There can't be shades of gray in between. But only Sith deal in absolutes and apparently Obi-Wan in saying that. Uh, it's just not where we want to come from. So it, I actually was kind of surprised by Mark's rant on the they lied to us thing, but I could see that perspective. And uh it was a great place to build discussion but certainly not something you're going to hear on every podcast at least not being in the reasoned way of being able to talk about it rather than exploding uh, if i can add one last thing to this something that's in mind that i'm thinking about proposing a new podcast actually for the network for um second airborne division and all and this is going to cause some people to go oh god uh my my opinion of him just dropped down a few notches we ditched cable and among other things i have a subscription to the blaze tv and I like to see different perspectives being given, and you don't get a lot of historical perspective in news outside of things like The Blaze where you've got Glenn Beck doing historical comparisons and whatnot. Again, that's the name that's going to cause some people to go, oh, God, I can't stand it. Some people are going, yay! But he did an episode recently where he interviewed a guy named Simon Sinek who's written a book called The Leader Eats Last. And uh, Start With Why I think is his other book. And they couldn't be further apart in their political views, Glenn Beck and this guy he's interviewing. But they're able to sit down and just talk and give each other the benefit of the doubt and get to the deeper aspects of things like leadership, where it's not about the political sides. It's about being willing to listen and realizing there's more that link us than divides us, but it's usually not heard beneath all the shouting that goes on. And Star Wars fandom is kind of like that, that we need to be able to sit down with people who have very different points of views, the EU lovers and the EU haters. Sit down and be able to discuss things without the negativity, as Mark was saying, not being dicks to each other, as you tend to see with the people at Celebration. It's, it's a good part about fandom, but it's not always present.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I like, as you, as you just described, basically, tough love, you know? <laughs> uh, another thing I like to say is a hater's going to hate and critique like Snark is not hate, but can be seen as hate's cousin.
2: His next one, very quick one, based on our discussion back in episode number 162 about A New Dawn, he says, Hey fellas, just a note. After listening to your show on A New Dawn, haven't read it yet, not on principle, just haven't got around to it, does anything seem familiar to you about the character of Vidian, a cyborg character whose name starts with a V that became bionic to save his life, who destroys a hospital to hide his past? Here's a hint, Nathan, you voiced him. How about good old Valence the Hunter? a cyborg villain whose name starts with V, who was injured in a rebel attack, became bionic, which he loathed to save his life, and was first seen destroying Angle Bay, I thought it was supposed to be Angel Bay, but it's actually written Angle Bay, Station, the hospital where he was transformed to wipe away traces of his past, Remove the Imperial Soldier backstory from his transformation, run it through an Occupy Wall Street filter, and... Well, your description just seemed a little too similar to be coincidence. I know that Legends is now a well-to-draw inspiration from, but this seems to be a straight-up rip-off of one of the first original Legends villains ever created, about the fourth following Crimson Jack, X, and Supervisor Grammel, perhaps. Maybe it's meant to be an homage, early Legends repurposed for early New Canon. Anyhow, as a resident old Marvels Legends and Su- anyhow, as a resident old Marvels and Legends enthusiast, I just thought I'd point it out. Sincerely, Jackson. I mean, Andrew Gilbertson. What he's referring to is the uh, Star Wars Marvels audio drama series that he did. I voiced quite a few characters, one of which was Valence the Hunter, this uh, character that made his appearance very early in the original Marvel run. I gotta say, that they do sound extremely familiar, though I don't know if this is a a direct lifting or purposeful homage, or if this was a situation where... It was a similar backstory that just was logical for that type of character, trying to hide his past so he destroyed the hospital where it happened. Um, that just happened to be there as coincidence. But you're right, it's extremely similar, especially given the fact that they're both, you know, named with Vs. But I mean, take Vader too, right? He became cybernetic mm-hmm. to save his life. Name starts with a V. He doesn't destroy the hospital to hide his past, but Vader certainly does hide his past as Anakin Skywalker from those uh, who know him as Vader later in life.
1: Well, and who was the guy in Dark Empire that was the ball? He was like a baron or a count or something.
2: Like Im-
1: Brand. Ah, Brand. Yes, I, that's who I was thinking of. I just in terms of how he looked, like I, the other guy totally slipped by me. I would say coincidental homage. I, I, I just, I, I'm actually. That's the one aspect I'm kind of looking forward to. Of, I mean. When it comes to Marvel things, the way the Ultimate Universe has taken characters and retooled them and stuff, uh, I believe Jessica Drew's character turned out to be a clone of Peter Parker. And I I just – I thought that was great. Um, Battlestar Galactica, the way they did things with Starbuck being a girl and Boomer being a girl and and changing things up, uh, because I knew it was a different universe than what I originally had seen and stuff, I was able to accept it and roll with it. So I – if it was purposeful, I think that's awesome, and if it's not, it's just a happy coincidence, and, and I like it as well. Uh, but I would think John Jackson Miller would probably be able to come open with that because he's he's pretty open with his uh, viewership and the people that follow him on Facebook and stuff. I know, Nathan, you've asked some stuff about TV shows, and the man's just a, a, a holocron of information just on that.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This just happens to be something that I don't think has popped up um, to ask in the past. Referring to our episode number 167, Andrew says, Nathan, and he's addressing, I guess, something that I specifically said uh, on this one. Side note, not so much challenging you as the basic perception of fandom, because this is something I've run into a lot lately, and it bugs the heck out of me. For my two cents, it makes no sense to have the Rebellion spring from the Confederacy, just because they both oppose the Empire. The Confederacy used tactics and stood for things that the Rebellion never would. And those rebels were former members of the Republic, don't forget. They may not like what the Emperor has done to their Republic, but that doesn't mean that the Confederacy becomes any less of the bad guys that they grew up with as an equal threat to the ideals of the Republic. George Washington opposed England, fighting to throw off the yoke of British governance. Al-Qaeda also opposes England, desiring to wipe it out as part of their jihad against the whole of the Western world. Just because they've both engaged in conflict with British forces doesn't mean that the two are equivalent, or should time and space somehow cross to bridge the eras of conflict, that they'd become allies. The enemy of my enemy is not a universal rule, and to my mind, the forces of the Confederacy would still be villains in the mind of the Republic-slash-Empire-raised individuals who would eventually become rebels. Crucially, one group always believed the Republic to be a bad thing, to be overthrown or even destroyed, and would oppose the Empire as an extension of the Republic, while the other viewed it as an ideal, to be restored from the forces that have corrupted it, and oppose the Empire for how it has twisted the Republic. I think that the two groups, if indeed there was much of anything left to the Confederacy or its members after Revenge of the Sith, I'd envision the new Empire was wiping them out pretty thoroughly. Would remain relatively divided as the deep root of their causes are diametrically opposed. While the CIS loyalists might see the rebels as a useful means to accomplish their end and extend an olive branch, I would think most rebels would still tend to see the CIS as another enemy of democracy and freedom, a second lesser foe, rather than a potential ally. Just my two desecreds, of course. Also, for Mark, keep in mind that the rebels analyzed the Death Star plans to search for any potential weakness. After a destruction-focused search by their top minds, they located a thermal port that if a million to one shot, that a number of people dismissed as impossible to make, managed to sink in there and hit whatever's at the end. It might trigger a chain reaction, meaning it wasn't a straightforward shot to something vital, but the first in a string of dominoes that would eventually take out something critical. This suggests to me that it wasn't something obvious, only something that someone searching for a way to destroy the Death Star and brainstorming desperate solutions might think up. And once the Imperials saw where the Rebels were headed and wondered, hmm, why there? Then their analysis discovered that, oh hey, there might be a danger. So I don't think it's a failure of Tarkin or the Empire to spot this, only because on Vlimzoplast, there wasn't a flaw or a direct access point. It's only when someone came at it from a totally different frame of mind, discarding practicality and asking, is there anywhere we might be able to get to that could be used to indirectly influence another thing rather than a direct vulnerability that it was discovered? And yeah, as a follow-up to number 169, I would actually be really irritated if they retconned it into a rebel-created weakness. I think that would be majorly shark jumping, kind of like the whole unused Dooku paid off the sand people to kidnap your mother bit from Revenge of the Sith. Some things can just be because they are rather than because they were caused. Andrew.
1: Actually, I like your explanation. I think the one thing that always kind of made me think that it was a glaring weakness was the diagram they used to describe it to everyone else. Uh, in fact, the way you ex- describe it, yeah, I, I would have to agree with that. Thinking that that it was something that was very obvious when you looked at the diagram, I was always like, "There's got to be something here," because, yeah, Tarkin really made it seem like you know they were all about the plans and stuff. But I never even thought about it in, in that regard of the cascade effect. So yeah, that I like, I like it, man, I like it.
2: I think that it comes down to a question of timing. Almost, uh, I'm actually okay with either of them. Of having the rebels somehow have a hand in creating it, creating the vulnerability, or having it be something they just managed to figure out out of desperation. It certainly is the desperation that seems like it's the primary reason we've always assumed, and that the film assumes. Uh, And the Imperials, they didn't know about it. As, As he said, when you start thinking outside the box, that's when they see it. You know, we reference it here with the way that Riley... Uh, mentions the whole spoilers thing in our Tarkin's arrogance bit for the spoiler alert, right? We've analyzed their attack sir, and there is a danger. You know, they didn't realize that that vulnerability was there because they wouldn't have thought of it as a vulnerability until they were like, where the heck are these starfighters going? What the heck are they trying to do? And they managed to wind up figuring it out. But I think the time factor is a big one because you would figure – that that type of desperate, holy crap, what exactly can we do to knock out the Death Star type of plan and type of analysis of the plans for a space station, that freaking huge and complex, would take time. And it seems like in the film, it's, here's R2, he's plugging in, here's the plans, ta-da! We've found the answer, right? And remember, is talking about how, you know, we. I only hope that when they analyze the plans that R2-D2 is carrying that a weakness can be found, it's not over yet. Well, that means that the Rebels didn't know that this was a weakness ahead of time. So in just the Mm. short time they've got from when R2-D2 gets plugged in to start looking at the plans, and when they've got to be ready for the Battle of Yavin, they manage to figure that out. And the Death Star is on its way the entire time. I think that's where there's this question of trying to give some other reason for why it would happen so fast, of the Rebels perhaps planting it. If they were to do something like the Rebels planting it, I think that would work, but it needs to be done in a very skilled way. It cannot be done as jumping the shark. It needs to be something more subtle. Uh, or it needs to be a plot point of something major like, say, the Rogue One film. That it's not just trying to get the Death Star plans, but that they're trying to hide that. Like, I'm not sure about the whole Rebels causing it. But maybe something where the rebels realize it's a flaw and make sure that the Imperials don't realize it. Like maybe there's an Imperial engineer who's figured out that it's a flaw. That's how the rebels realize that there might be a chance. And then they kill the person who realizes the Imperials can't find out about it and then share that. And that's how they figure it out so quickly. They're they're just sort of confirming it and confirming Mm -hmm. the chain reaction during A New Hope. But either way, it's a heck of a thing to figure out in such a short amount of time and – it doesn't, whether it's a coincidence, because it just is, or it's something that was actually set up ahead of time, it's that question of believability. If you're going to tell us a story that ties into either way, make sure that it doesn't seem like, wow, that's convenient, because that's the big thing, that's the big criticism of A New Hope that you hear from just regular movie fans, which is, wow, they've got this big battle station, and they left this glaring vulnerability. Wow, that's kind of stupid. They don't, take the nuance into it of the way that Andrew just approached it and described it, which I think is accurate, but regular film goers don't put that much thought into it. It's just, wow, that was dumb. It's like having a video game villain where all their weak points are yellow. Duh, shoot it.
1: (laughs) Well, the other one was uh, when you mentioned, you know, the rebellion springing, not from the Confederacy, you know, that you had some good points there and it makes you also admire Sidious's I don't know intellect the, the, the way he was able to take the groups that would later rebel and put bad people in charge that would basically make them all villains in the eyes of everyone else I you know you, you bring up some good points there as well that that I hadn't really thought about I mean I guess in a lot of ways it, it really comes down to the public knowledge of the Sith and whether or not the Sith started the Clone Wars I I think about as to you know directions of the rebellion uh you know if they knew that palpatine had a hand in you know setting up the confederacy the aspect to restore the republic you know would have more of a sense i know nathan you'd you'd mention the ideals and stuff and i i i guess that that's where it really breaks down isn't it when the republic and the confederacy start crumbling apart it wasn't so much over ideals it was more over economics um, at least that seems to be the main reason for the the groups that, that Sidious put in charge as the bad guys, uh, you know. And I, I, I guess, I, I guess I, I hadn't really thought about it like that. Is more the the ethical aspect. So yeah, if the rebellion's going back to the ethics of the Republic before, you know, the Confederacy split and all that stuff, yeah, it makes a lot more sense. And I guess you wouldn't need to have a public knowledge that the Sith started everything, but. I don't know, there was always that side of me, like, like in Legends, when Boba Fett was, like, the only one that knew. You know, he knew who Tyrannus was, and he, he you know, it was like, I liked knowing that there was an element out there that knew exactly what was going on beyond Sidious himself.
2: Well, it's funny, because you think about the way that Lucas divided this. What basically, because of who the leaders are of the Confederacy, aside from Dooku, what basically is the conflict that Lucas set up? It wasn't just Confederacy versus Republic. Um, it wasn't just dictatorship eventually versus those who were trying to get away from it or corruption versus supposed purity. It was big government versus big business, right? Techno union, right? Neimoidian trade federation, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, versus the growing centralization of power in the Republic. So you've got sort of a uh, a modern political context that could be added to that. Yeah, trade think, route disputes. Right, right. Uh, taxation. Ooh, gripping. I wonder, though, if we're looking at this sort of too much in a black-and-white sort of way. Uh, of course, those who were following the Confederacy because they just wanted the Republic gone wouldn't necessarily be someone who would want to bring the Republic back. But I think that it's a question of perspective. I mean, one on one hand, you've got the Republic— versus the confederacy as a federation versus confederation, a federal system having the the national government or the overarching government being um, supreme with individual rights existing for the components, whether it's states or anything else, like the United States right now. Whereas you've also got a confederacy, which is what the United States was before our current constitution under the Articles of Confederation, where it's all these loose individual bits that all have their own sovereignty, and they only... Very loosely connect together. In that sense, you do have a different political ideology also for people who do want to have their own voice. They do want to have some form of democracy. It's just that one of them wants something that's more centralized, one of them wants something that's more decentralized. And in that case, maybe you can find a way to bring those ideas together if you can strike a balance, or those could be diametrically opposed, you know, federalist, -federalist, anti-federalist type of perspective. But I wonder if we get a key to this perhaps in Heroes on Both Sides, and in particularly, Um, The Bonteri family. Yes, you've got the Republic haters on the Confederacy side, but that showed us that there are people who, for ideological reasons going against corruption, wanted to make a stand for their rights against this overreach of the government. Where have we heard that before? Modern America. um, And they stepped away from the Republic for that reason. They created their own Confederacy Congress and so forth, for instance. There could be good people who want rule of law, who want to have a stable society, who didn't see that in the Republic, and in becoming Confederates, once the Republic has become the Empire, they would join the fight to create a democracy again. What form it would take when it's done not being the issue. Let's get democracy first and then figure out how are we going to structure it, Confederacy, Feder- Federation, whatever. Um someone like Mina Bonteri, I could see becoming a rebel. Um that's why I can very clearly see Lux Bonteri making that jump between being a Confederate versus uh, working towards helping the Republic. But then you've also got those groups who were formed to fight the Confederacy who wind up becoming early rebels, like the ones that we see in the Onderon arc of the Clone Wars. But I think to say that you know it's about you know either groups fighting the Confederates become the rebels or groups from the Confederacy becoming rebels is too black and white of a distinction. I think it's a question of people who want— fairness, people who want the ideals a republic stands for, being on both sides and being willing to work together. Again, looking at things in terms of what brings people together rather than what drives them apart. But I do think it was Lucas himself who initially said the Confederacy would be the heart of where the rebellion would come from, but then the Clone Wars said, no, it was these groups, uh, these little terrorist-type cells created to fight the Confederacy like in the Onderon arc, that did it. Um, I would argue the truth logically has to be somewhere in between, which is the way it tends to work in, in the modern world. That it's all about the shared ideals. It's not necessarily always the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Sometimes it's the enemy of my enemy that I sometimes think of as my enemy actually has common ground with me. Maybe there is a foundation to be friends other than just who our enemy is. To episode number 169. Andrew brings some more thoughts into this. And again, the reason why I think we tend to give Andrew sometimes a much larger space I and mean, we tend to address as much as we can from everybody's feedback, his tend to be longer and more in depth, but I do find that they're very thought provoking usually. So as long as they're still thought provoking, we'll still devote the time to it.
1: Well, plus he's referencing specific episodes, which makes it easy to <laughs> go back. Oh, that's what mm-hmm. we were saying. Sometimes, you know, people are, are, are mentioning things we've said and, and, you know, I edit the episodes and, so, you know, now Nathan's doing some of these longer ones. And, you know, I hear the things so many different times. And I'm like, wait, when did I say that? What did I say? Oh, my goodness. Especially being the Bipolar Star Wars fan. I'm sure I said everything.
2: Yeah, it's my job to edit, for instance, this one. Because when I read somebody's email, especially with a headache like I have now, I screw up a lot. And I don't want to inflict that on Mark as much as possible. So he says, again, in relation to episode 169. Your Roman Empire metaphor does indeed address some of the trepidation I expressed in my audio feedback, which you are going to actually hear uh, momentarily, folks, at least in terms of the precedent for the First Order slash Resistance setup, as we currently assume it to be based solely on trailers and the names themselves. That said, I would very much dislike this turn of events. He's talking about the whole idea of... uh, We talked about how necessarily just because the Empire has fallen... Um, Does it fall quickly? Does it transform into something else, etc., etc.? Does an empire collapse? Does it crumble? Does it break into small parts? And so on. Like, uh, when we were talking about the Force Awakens stuff that we learned out of Celebration and whatnot, I believe it was. I would very much dislike this turn of events, which I feel would be a disservice to the ending of Return of the Jedi for the sake of an ongoing cash-in potential of continuing entries. In addition, in-universe, while there's no exact parallel on Earth, You'd almost have to have a one-world government in order for anything with the Republic or Empire to be a perfect metaphor. I find Nazi Germany to be a far better analogy for the Empire than Rome, a new government risen within an existing state, headed by one charismatic leader, and founded on fascism. Its roots are shallow, so to speak, just like the empires. I have a hard time buying that the organization of the Republic into an empire by Palpatine would be so thorough that it would endure for decades after his death. The Roman Empire, as I understand it, has centuries of existence to establish and sustain it, accounting for its endurance. And while that could be said of the Republic, which is why I don't think it would cease to exist overnight, it could be... It could not be said of the Empire, which is more of a regime change, an absurdly tiny blip in the overall lifespan of the Republic. Unlike Rome's historical situation, the Empire had about 25 years, lost its charismatic leader, and took crippling levels of personnel and material loss after both Death Stars, I would have a hard time believing that in Palpatine's absence, it would continue as an organized martial military state so thoroughly and completely. While the sector governors could absorb some of the blow, the apparent full bounce back that the only theorized Episode Seven paradigm suggests seems quite questionable to me. And even if the historical precedent is addressed thematically and narratively, I find it an extremely pessimistic and unsatisfying reversal of Return of the Jedi's ending declaration of triumph and freedom, essentially reducing it to a premature and naive celebration, reducing the effect of Anakin's sacrifice to near nothing, though retaining its personal significance of self-sacrifice and redemption for him, of course, and essentially trivializing the original trilogy from the cornerstone of the franchise and the story of the pivotal fight that changes the galaxy into a small and ultimately somewhat futile campaign in a long, long, ongoing conflict that the six-episode saga fails to resolve. It reduces Palpatine as a villain, turning him into a brilliant architect, certainly, but an ultimately insignificant figure whose defeat can be easily shrugged off. In short, this would not work for me. It would be an excellent way for the new films to completely and totally set itself apart from the EU by being a much darker, grimmer, more pessimistic alternative where everything that the heroes went through won't bear fruit within their lifetime. So if the new franchise runners are looking to do something new, hey, mission accomplished. But I suspect I wouldn't be the only fan completely and utterly turned off by that direction. Fortunately, this remains, so far as I know, only conjecture, and something which I hope won't turn out even remotely to be the case. The First Order as a sort of Imperial remnant? I can certainly accept. A scenario in which the Empire is essentially unaffected by Return of the Jedi save for a change of leadership? And the former Rebellion, now a Resistance, which sounds even smaller and less powerful, having gained nothing from their victory, I cannot. So, here's hoping once more that this idea is not what they're going for, merely an erroneous assumption. This concludes, sort of, because we of course have his audio one to look at and one more that he sent after this batch. At last, my deluge of catch-up feedback. In the accepting new canon struggle, there are better days and worse days. It seems that days when new info comes out on the films themselves, or the comics, are more often than not the worst ones. Rebels needs to hurry up and return so I can start having the better days again. A good deal of that ongoing struggle has been chronicled here. I suspect it will continue up to the Journey to the Force Awakens coming out, when we find out exactly what direction the galaxy far, far away is truly going in. It's kind of a scary time, knowing that there are very many possible directions, some of which, as noted above, are quite abhorrent to me, and taking Star Wars further and further away from anything I'd want it to be. It's the not knowing that's the hardest, I think. The Schrodinger's cat of suspended potential to go one way or another. In any event, there's been a great volume of words from me of late. I don't expect to request that any of it be used. We did. So only include anything you find useful for the show. The rest file under personal correspondence. Sorry to flood your inboxes so heavily. Andrew Gilbertson. And he has a P.S. P.S. Despite the worry that it may cement a new direction that I disapprove of, I am likewise looking very much forward to Aftermath. I like the concept. Just like Rogue One, however, which I like the story concept of, but I'm very wary of a dark and gritty take on Star Wars, which to me would be a not-at-all-Star Wars take on Star Wars. It all depends on content and execution. A lot of promising ideas, but seeing how they pan out will tell the tale on just how easy or hard they make it for me to accept this new canon after Legends. Thus far, anything they do to push things in a darker, less optimistic direction will tend to point toward much, much harder, as it is to me the antithesis of what Star Wars was meant to be. A dark, disillusioned, post-Vietnam, post-race riots, anti-establishment, can't-trust-your-leaders America needed a brighter, brasher, simpler, more heroic and optimistic brand of adventure than what it was getting from Hollywood in general. A dark, divided, post-9-11 ongoing race riots, social controversy America needs the same. Perhaps that's been my difficulty with the prequels and the post-New Jedi Order stories from the start, the way the stories seem to embody the cultural darkness rather than offering the alternative to it that the originals did. Regardless, I truly do hope that this is what the new Star Wars provides us, not an updated, of-its-time parcel of darkness that is just the same as everything else Hollywood's giving us these days. That would be a disservice to everything the original stood for to my mind. So fingers crossed for something brighter, and the hope that a bit more of the light side will awaken than the ever-present Hollywood dark.
1: Oh man, the not knowing is murder. You know, that that's that's so true in so many ways. Uh, you know, one thing you brought up that 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 I thought about was when Sidious dies, right? Okay, in the EU in Legends, when he died, he had a force control over his troops, so they were like thrown in complete chaos. So if that's not being used at all, I mean, if they're not going to go with any kind of dark side magic being manipulated on his people, his underlings and all that kind of stuff, uh yeah, I, I, there's so many directions they could go uh with after he dies. I mean, that was that was the one thing I was always trepidatious about is like that whole let's stretch out the new Imperial Baron of the Week kind of thing or the new governor or Moff or, you know, it's like. Everybody wanted to have that hat, so everybody, you know, we always had that story. It was always this so-and-so wanting to take control the new Empire. and yeah, So, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that we're only doing this one more time in that regard. I was talking with one of the 501st members, and he was saying he wouldn't be surprised to see if like Chewie dies in this movie because he kind of seems to think that all the new canon stuff is going to find ways to tie itself in directions of the other stuff, but in new ways. And I, I didn't think that. So in a lot of ways, I'm excited for Aftermath the most, uh, because that one, it's, I think that one's going to set the story the most as to where we're going to go into, you know, the new era. Uh, although the journey of the Force Awakens, you know, they haven't told us exactly what all twenty of those books are, or even the main six that are are, are flooding it in. But I think the ones that are closer to the movie date are be, going to be the ones that really establish, you know, the tone. You know, and they're the ones that I like the most in the in the regard of I'm a current story guy. I like to live in the moment. Um, the the current Luke stories were always the ones I liked the most. I didn't like going back to Shadows of the, uh, Mindor when I had you know Crucible about to come out. You know, I, I would grab the ones that Luke was doing right now as they came out. And I could read those ones really fast because those ones I was just dying to know more about. And and I aftermath, I have that feel, Uh, you know, I'm reading Lords of the Sith right now. And it was the one that I was the most excited about of those announced books. Uh, And it's, it's again, it's still feeling like it's shaping up to an essential read. Uh, You know, it's definitely the most one out of all the ones that have come out so far, but aftermath has the taste in my fandom uh you know it's got my fandom senses tingling you know i i think there's going to be some magic there and i i did find out in the uh, star wars delray panel that that is part of a trilogy so i'm really excited about that like that that has me super stoked
2: i think there is something to be said for the idea that if this really is just the empire becoming the first order if this really is the rebellion becoming the resistance that essentially it does somewhat undermine the end of Return of the Jedi, but I think you can make that same argument for uh, you know what happened in, for instance, Legacy of the Force, or the return of the Emperor in Dark Empire and such, that any time that the struggle between what used to be the Rebel Alliance or the Alliance to Restore the Republic and the remnants of the Galactic Empire, anytime that struggle continues in a major scale, you've got that question of, well... Was what happened at the end of Return of the Jedi really worth it? You know, did Luke really bring balance to the Force? Because we still see the struggle between light and dark so often and that sort of thing. I think the issue that we're running into here is how do they transform, right? Which hopefully Aftermath and others will deal with. Is the First Order essentially like somehow Nazi Germany coming back after their defeat, even without Hitler? Or is it more like neo-Nazis? similar ideology rising up, only in this case having more success than a neo-Nazi movement would, uh, if we're going to use that perhaps as the reference here. Or maybe what we're seeing is, if you go back and you look at history, the Roman Empire example, the Roman Empire, and he's right, had a lot longer history than, you know, the Galactic Empire in Star Wars. The Galactic Empire in Star Wars is very, very tiny. I mean, you basically have 23 years, less than 25, before the Empire, if you want to say it ends with. Palpatine invader ceases to exist, at least in that form, because they're dead. Um, you take the Roman Empire, what happens afterwards? Well, you've got Constantinople, uh, previously Byzantium, later known as Istanbul, referring to itself as the capital of the Byzantine Empire as the Second Rome. And then Moscow, as you see the development in Russia, calling itself the Third Rome. And this idea that they're thinking of themselves as the cultural legacy of this earlier government that they revere and see as the pinnacle and therefore they're sort of building themselves and creating themselves with a look and style a system and a nomenclature and naming system very similar to that previous incarnation even if it's not actually a direct descendant of that thing like maybe this is people who agreed with the new order's way of doing things and are developing something along similar lines or heck they call it first order If Palpatine's is still referred to as the New Order, you gotta wonder if they're referencing something darker, perhaps even more ancient than the recent history of the Empire is, and trying to build something on that foundation, they just happen to have the trappings of the Imperials, for all we know. It it hasn't been clarified yet. We just don't know.
1: You know, the Darth Maul taking over the Maul aspect?
2: Kind of. On a quick little funny note, before we get to his audio one, uh We have one in reference to Star Wars Beyond the Film's number 170, in which Andrew says, Just listening, and I heard Nathan say, We finally have a black character other than Lando. Other than Lando and Mace. My immediate first thought was, Wow, he sure doesn't remember the Ewok adventure very well. Right, I'm assuming you meant Windu, and don't forget Panaka and Typho, too. I kind of like, though, that my brain is wired to think of the Ewok TV movies, like Mace Tawani, before it does the prequels. If I had a conscious choice, that's exactly the way I'd prioritize them. Andrew.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know if I could say anything to that.
2: <laughs> mm, crash! Crash! That's <laughs> all I can think of when I think of the Ewok movies. The, uh, the baby talk of Wicket. yab, yab. <laughs> Give me the power! Says uh, the guy that looks like, you know, Skeleton... Man or Skeletor, basically,
1: and they they retconned that that lady into a night sister, didn't
2: they? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has
1: got solid ground in legends, that's for sure.
2: I want the power. Granted, my ancestors came here on a ship and we knew what technology was, but now we don't know what technology is anymore. So give me that power cell. It's gonna make me magic. She stupid. Want power now? <laughs> You're so stupid. <laughs> uh, UHF reference there for the fans. Uh, Cooney, I believe, was a character's name. Alright, this brings us into the audio. So it's less of me reading the email and actually the message coming in from Andrew with a small postscript uh, by email to clarify some of the things that he says in the email. This was written between some of the previous ones. He does reference it in a previous one that uh, I was reading there moments ago. But, as our last sort of string of responses, we have Andrew's which broken up into bits and pieces so that it's easier to digest. And there may be times where we'll talk about it after each individual clip or after a couple of clips, just depending on when uh, there's something we particularly want to deal with or wait to deal with it along with other things.
0: Hey there, Nathan and Mark, this is Andrew Gilbertson with a topic that I suspect will be somewhat controversial. In many ways, it is simply a part of a much larger topic on the just-get-over-it attitude with legends. However, it's enough of a digression that I thought it warranted a separate discussion. And that is very much the idea of George Lucas as the arbiter of Star Wars. Uh, One of the things you often hear, for instance, in canon discussions is, well, George Lucas never considered it canon, or in discussions of the special edition or, you know, things that Clone Wars did. Uh, Well, now it matches with George's vision. Um, this has always irked me, but I wanted to try and articulate why I don't consider that to be a valid measure of anything. Because let's just get it out in the open. I was going to say that I didn't give a ranette's rear end about what George Lucas thought about Star Wars, but that's not actually true. Because the man did create it. He does deserve great respect for that. However, I do not treat His opinion or his vision as the be-all end-all of Star Wars. Let me give an example from another franchise. Gene Roddenberry created Star Trek. However, he did not always know what was best for Star Trek and he didn't have the final say on it. In fact, in his older age he took to saying that two of the best Star Trek movies were not Star Trek in his opinion, being too militaristic, and when he got unfettered creative control For the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation, it was an absolute train wreck. Or Starship Collision with a Quantum Filament, if you prefer. The point being that while he created something in his youth that was fantastic and forever deserved respect as that creative visionary, once the franchise grew beyond him, there turned out to be others that had a better vision for what the series could or should be, and sometimes his opinions directly conflicted with the creative staff, actors, and fans of the franchise, all of whom differed from his vision. Now that isn't to say that George Lucas doesn't deserve the full share of creative control over his own creation, Star Wars, although one could argue that he yielded it as early as 1980, since he only directed the first of the three films. Already he was sharing his power. I see... George Lucas as the George Washington of Star Wars. After his triumphant original trilogy conquests, the people were all set up to make him king, but he said, no, that's not how it's going to work. In creating the Lucasfilm stable of companies and giving them creative control of various Star Wars licensed products, I see him as having empowered a House and Senate, if you will. In setting out the levels of canon distributing those to fandom, I see him as having written a constitution for Star Wars. While he is still the first, the president, if you will, and deserves to be remembered by history, well respected. Nonetheless, he is no longer the sole voice, whose word is law. In many ways, it's the uh, playing of Revenge of the Sith and A New Hope in reverse. He has reintegrated the Senate and given up the power of Emperor for life. To my mind, in doing these things, he created a franchise that no longer existed solely from him, but existed through the company whom he empowered Again, George is still given the highest level of canon, so in many ways what he says still went, at least until this sale to Disney, which I think proved once and for all that the Star Wars franchise has grown beyond George Lucas. My point being, while George's voice should still be listened to even by his most ardent detractors, I don't see it as the be-all and end-all. Therefore, if Lucas says in an interview that the EU has always been an alternate universe that only his films ever counted, but the company that he created to administrate and oversee Star Wars has officially released that there was a G-canon, a T-canon, an N-canon, an S-canon, a Q-canon, a V-canon, what have you, I am going to give greater weight to that. Lucas still left himself a loophole to override anything that he so chose allowing himself to override things by the creation of new Lucas-made products. That same loophole does not exist for his opinions in candid interviews, nor for his personal views. Those, to my mind, are not official to Star Wars. That is why I have a hard time accepting when someone brings into an argument, but this is the way George Lucas always meant for it to be. Oh, but George Lucas never considered this. That doesn't mean anything to me, because his personal beliefs and opinions don't really reflect on the overall brand. The man's contribution to Star Wars, heck, the creation of Star Wars, should not be discounted. But that doesn't make his every whim or opinion official. George's vision is his vision, but it's not Star Wars until he makes a movie and turns it into Star Wars by including that vision in a G-canon product. Of course, all of this is now moot with the new Canon system. Nonetheless, Lucas's vision, like Roddenberry's back in the day, still has its potential flaws still is the imperfect vision of a man that can be right and brilliant sometimes. Heck, I'm one of those folks that likes Radio Land murders, but wrong at other times. And most importantly, it's not official. And hey, isn't that what this whole legends debacle is about, the reason that it stings for some fans? Because what's official does matter to us. In this case, George's vision isn't.
2: Now, to this piece, uh, it's interesting because Lucas has this unusual dynamic of being a creator of a saga that's being extended while he, for a while there, was still actually in charge and still alive. You know, you have other franchises like, say, the Dune franchise. You know, Frank Herbert can't say anything about how Kevin J. Anderson and Brian Herbert are continuing to evolve the Dune franchise with prequels and, and interquels or whatever you want to call the books between the other books and that sort of thing because he passed away. You you trust those who now handle the legacy to be able to take care of it. And we're not quite to the point where it's all in the public domain or anything like that where the creator is gone and new things aren't being made, where the fans have some kind of cultural ownership, as is mentioned in uh, Using the Force uh, Creativity Community and Star Wars Fans by Will Brooker, which is a great sociological study by I am quoted in it. I'm not saying it because I'm quoted. I really do like the study. I like the sociology of fandom. So to his points here more specifically, one, it's interesting he thinks of it as a balance of power, um, of, of a checks and balances system, essentially, where Lucas did delegate quite a bit of authority over to Lucasfilm and the licensees to create this expanded Star Wars universe when he gave the thumbs up to an official continuation going into 1991. Uh, And to a degree ceding some of that power to Kirshner and, and Marquand and so forth, back with Empire and Jedi and so forth. Although, I would argue that when he then came to the prequels, and he then came to the Clone Wars, that was basically him pulling a Bush or Obama, or most modern presidents. Which is, okay, there was this balance of power between executive, legislative, judicial, but I'm the president, people know me, I'm the face of this government, I'm going to gather more power for my office and my branch of government where, for instance, we're going to make a treaty with Iran. And the president now says, well, we're just going to do it by an executive agreement. Screw going through the Senate. That's not how it's supposed to work. The Senate is supposed to ratify and approve any treaties. That's where the check and balance is doesn't work like that. Or we're just going to give President Bush the authorization for the use of force and let him do whatever the hell he wants over in Iraq and Afghanistan instead of an official declaration of war and some congressional oversight. There's been this shift, and maybe that's what we're seeing, you know, the parallel of our government into uh, what was happening there with Lucas. Although I will find that what's interesting when the EU was being developed or the Legends Continent was being developed, it was sort of like there was a veto power on both sides because Lucas could come in and do a veto with, say, the Clone Wars or the prequels, you know, oh, no, you can't have orange lightsabers, you can't have turquoise lightsabers, they gotta be, you know, blue, red, green, or in Mace's case, purple. That's it. Veto! But at the same time, you also had instances where, for instance, Lucas was out there saying publicly, as far as he's concerned, Boba Fett's dead. And Lucas Film was able to essentially give the decree that, well, at least for the purposes of Legends... That's not the case. He can still live after Return of the Jedi. Or, at least as far as Legends is concerned, you can have lightsaber colors that aren't those primary four. That the veto existed on both sides, but you didn't usually see Lucasfilm vetoing something coming from Lucas, but they just wanted it to be more kind of on paper, like once it was already in practice thanks to a film or something. But even then, they would step in when it served the broader purposes of Legends, and sometimes not go along with what he said. I think the whole issue of him always referring to the EU as this you know, alternate universe thing and yet giving the okay for the official continuation, it's a matter of perspective, right? From his perspective, there's his saga and then – he allowed the licensees to create this spin-off universe, but he never really considered it his own and never felt beholden to it. Whereas Lucasfilm, the company and the licensees, were rather promoting it as this is the official continuation. But I don't know that there was ever a point at which anyone within Lucasfilm and Del Rey or Bantam or Dark Horse or Marvel or whoever would have said these are equal and on par with the films. Lucas can't trample these. Lucas, if he wanted to make sequels or prequels or whatever, couldn't change any of this. Even in some of the earliest EU materials being printed, at least after the official launch in 91, you got comments like those, I think, by West End Games and by Kevin J. Anderson about how, you know, this all exists at the sufferance of Lucas. If he wanted to change something, he certainly could. We just hope that he doesn't, and for a while there, we assumed he wasn't going to. I would say, in a sense, that what we get, if we're going to make a historical example, he makes the George Washington example. I want to take that same era and use it as an example here. American Revolution. Okay, It starts out with these American colonies, and they're being set up by France, they're being set up by uh, England, and so forth, and so forth, until eventually you get these 13 primary colonies uh, that are all beholden to the British. But for the most part, the British take a hands-off approach and let them do their own thing as long as they're abiding by British law, as long as they're making Britain money. But then they get involved in, for instance, the French and India War uh, and other conflicts going on in Europe. And you wind up with the British crown needing more tax money. And all of a sudden, they start putting more restrictions and more taxes on the colonists who, at least to a degree, had been left to their own devices for a long time, kind of out of sight, out of mind. And it wasn't so much that the colonists felt as though Britain did not have a right to tax them. They were British colonies. They wanted the representation. But the argument wasn't necessarily that, well, you know, we aren't British colonies anymore. How dare the British have any authority over us? That wasn't the issue. It was the representation angle and the voice angle in it. But it was the need for that voice because they'd been left alone for so long. It was like the step-parent who comes into the relationship, never tries to actually act like a parent, And then two or three years into the marriage, all of a sudden starts trying to make new rules for the kids. You know, where the hell did you come from? Why haven't you been exercising that authority up till now? And how dare you exercise authority now, even though they've got the authority? It feels like oppression because they're exercising it when before they hadn't. For the American colonists, British start being more heavy-handed. They felt like that shouldn't be the case because of their past experience, even though technically it was Britain's right. And you get the American Revolution, whereas in this case, basically Lucas let the official continuity and let the licensees do pretty much whatever they wanted to, and then comes the prequels, and then comes the Clone Wars. And all of a sudden, he's imposing his will on the saga, which is his right and has been his right, but he hadn't done it for so long, and we'd assume he wasn't going to do it, especially with things like the Clone Wars and the sequel trilogy and such, for so long that there's this automatic response to it of, how dare he, when… If he had been exercising that all along, we probably wouldn't have had that type of reaction and we probably would have had a more consistent canon policy uh, in the early years. Instead, we have an American Revolution uh, or stepchild kind of reaction, which is, where have you been? And didn't you sort of cede some of your authority by default by not exercising it in so long? And it turns out, no, he didn't cede it. It was just kind of wishful thinking that he was never going to step in and trample anything.
1: Just like it was wishful thinking to think that they were never going to do anything after post return of the Jedi. I mean, I always had had such faith in the man on that. Uh, you know, the franchise has grown beyond George Lucas. I I agree with you 100% on that. Um, you know, the Star Trek references, especially, uh, you know, my, some of my favorite series are the ones that happened after he died. Uh, you know, deep space nine, I believe, he died what first season into that or, or before that came along. Voyager was completely after he, he had passed away. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, Lucas, you always hear about the sandbox, you know, and Lucas always gets crap for, you know, not being one to share his toys or, or, or let you more specifically let you share the toys, build a great castle and then come in and kick it all down. You know, those, those classic things, which gets back to your earlier comments about, you know, the, the, Thin line between you know snark and hate. How I, I feel at times that my opinions on on Lucas himself put me more in that camp where people think I'm a hater uh, because of the snarky comments I make, because of the things I've seen over the years. Uh, and I think you know your your voicemail especially points out an, an opinion that needs to be stated. I know there are a lot of other fans out there that that have similar views and look at it in different ways. Uh, you know that, that I would love to have some audio like like you just gave us to be able to share those opinions with fans because, you know, well, mine is a pro EU approach. I'm not the most eloquent of speakers at times. And that was brilliant, man.
2: You make the sandbox example. I think part of it is that we don't get the context of the discussions going on either within the licensees and within Lucasfilm. Right. So when Lucas comes <laughs> in, I mean, there's a way to be polite with a sandbox. It's my sandbox right? You've built all kinds of, you know, castles and whatnot in it that are great. I can come in and say, wow, those are really impressive. That's really neat. Maybe I'll incorporate some aspects of it into whatever I'm going to do, but thank you for seeding over control of the sandbox because it is mine. I am going to create something new, but I hope you enjoyed your time playing in it and being polite about it versus coming in, looking at someone's castle built in your sandbox and coming in and just starting to kick it going, it's gone, bitch. Your sandcastle is gone. There's kind of a difference in approach there. And I think because we're not privy to the discussions on the inside that a lot of times it seemed like George Lucas was coming in and just kicking the sandcastles when maybe that wasn't the case. Or maybe he was just coming in and not realizing the sandcastle was quite as big and elaborate as it turned out to be.
1: Oops, don't stand there, George. You know, it is nice, though, that, that the story group has taken that Sandcastle, that sandbox itself. They took the sandcastles that represent films one through six and the Clone Wars and, and they've made these nice little molds. And then they moved it over and started a whole new sandbox and they threw out rebels and all these other new projects and stuff. It's like, Oh, I got a whole new sandbox to play in. You know, when I think about it like that, it's like, I still got this other sandbox sitting over here. And I like that one a lot more than they're not coming to take your bucks. Cause yeah, I, I'm with you on that one, man the people that say that and then say to just get over it, they, they really don't understand it, it, it. sometimes I, I used to always make the examples Well, what if George killed so-and-so today and this thing,
2: it had happened, you know, it,
1: but now that's even gone. So we stand in a new world and, and while it's equally exciting, it is a frightening place, as you said.
2: Now his next part here actually does retread some of the ground from a previous email that we read from him. So he makes four points Two of which were covered back in that one, dealing with his thoughts and the concerns about the Journey to the Force Awakens and uh, the question of whether or not we're basically discarding a big chunk of long-standing and well-developed storytelling for something that's more of a media tie-in here. His third and fourth points, though, are different enough and we think relevant enough that they should be included here even though some of the piece was redundant. So we'll cut out the redundant piece. These two points he makes, though, are new.
0: 3. By nature, almost nothing of significance, unless it is a single referenced event, like it seems the Battle of Jaksu may be emerging to be, can happen in these stories. Being tie-in products, it is not in their nature to add any major events in the in-between time, because, hey, if there were any major events to be had, we'd be making the movies about those. Instead, we'll be seeing a slow transition, a gradation, maybe a few adventures, but of the type that we saw in, what was it, Razor's Edge, that have no importance, impact, or significance. Indeed, those Luke, Leia, and Han novels that seemed so inconsequential when they came out that were a major subject of your complaints, this tie-in focused expanded universe, if you will, almost guarantees that we will be getting nothing but a slew of just such inconsequential stories. Twenty years of consequence are being replaced by a year of inconsequence. And there we are at four. All of this has been rushed. Indeed, Star Wars just like the uh, 50th anniversary Star Trek 13 entry that I'm so skeptical about, seem to be learning nothing from the 1978 debacle of Star Trek The Motion Picture. More and more studios seem to be running on this whole, first we announce a release date, then we write, film, and make the movie. Because, you know, that kind of rush always results in quality. If making a movie in about two years from concept and pre-production all the way through to final production seems like it's perhaps not giving it the time it needs. Certainly Star Wars has never been made that quickly before. Doing the same with the tie-in media is even worse. In fact, less because the tie-in products couldn't have started until after the Force Awakens script was written and have to be finished before the Force Awakens comes out. They are all being written Hastily, probably over the course of a year. There is no time to plan. There is no time to refine because they have to be out by a deadline. All of them, all at once. Now, maybe these new Journey of the Force Awakens materials will not fill up the entire 30 years. Maybe they will leave gaps during which other adventures could be set. We don't know yet. I live in hope. Nonetheless, it feels very much like someone going into the Sistine Chapel, grabbing a paint roller, covering up the mural that took months or years to paint, giving someone a can of spray paint and saying, whatever you can do in one day, that will be the new permanent replacement. Okay, that's maybe going a little far, Much as I love the EU, I recognize it's no Sistine Chapel. I'm trying to capture the emotional value of the loss rather than the objective value of the loss. Nonetheless, it feels that disrespectful and short-sighted. Now, perhaps this series will bring the quality. Perhaps they will still manage to give us some strong stories. No one would be happier than me. Well, probably someone would, but I would still be very happy. Point being, the SABAC deck, or Sabak deck, thanks to Rebels, is stacked against them. Conditions have not been set that are favorable to that outcome, and that makes me angry. The old EU was crafted with care by some top talent, taking their time and coming up with individual ideas to serve good stories. Its replacement deserves at least the same courtesy, receiving time, and a chance to have retrospect in which to craft its stories and slowly fill in that blank rather than rushing them all out simply for the purpose of promoting a work foreign to themselves. At the very least, the new post-return of the Jedi canon ought to have stories being told for their own sake rather. Than simply media tie ins to get people to go and see a movie that, let's face it, everyone and their uncle was already going to go see anyway.
2: You know, on the whole thing of they can't tell a big important story, like you couldn't have a big momentous event like, say, uh, the Thrawn campaign or uh, the founding of the Jedi Academy and those types of things where, you know, the original EU tended to be built in single novels or trilogies for a long time right after Return of the Jedi, so basically each one had to have something momentous happening in it um, to make a difference, and movie tie-ins tend to not do so, like, say, The Approaching Storm or Cloak of Deception and whatnot, although Cloak of Deception at least served a point building up to the, the political situation and the makeup of the Trade Federation Directorate and all that. I would say that I'm a little more skeptical on the idea that maybe we're going to fall into that trap with Star Wars, because if the story group is really doing the job that they claim that they're doing. I actually think Star Wars could avoid that trap, because, like, the Battle of Jakku or whatever, being shown in the Battlefront video game and us getting the novel that's dealing with parts of Battlefront and whatnot, I actually think that they're going to try to make the effort to make other momentous events in the growing saga take place in books, in comics, whatever. Obviously, they're not going to necessarily create something that a moviegoer has to see and understand before going to see the movie in order for the movie to make sense. But I wouldn't put it past them to have major development points in the continuity take place in a book or a comic and such. I think that's what the story group was designed to do. It's just a question of whether they're doing what they were designed to do. As to the whole rush job thing, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, the prequels only had... Three years between films. Uh, the classic trilogy only had three years between films. Uh, granted, that was another age, and even you could sort of say the early 2000s compared to now in filmmaking are somewhat different. But I guess it just depends on perspective. Uh, some writers take a long time to write something that's really good. Sometimes writers take a long time to write something that's very ponderous. I take uh, George R. 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 Martin. Uh, I love the Game of Thrones TV series. The books are ponderous as hell. And it takes forever to write them, whereas you can have somebody who's able to churn out books fairly quickly and get something solid out of it. Say what you will of Kevin J. Anderson's Star Wars books, some love it, some hate it. I think of things that he writes like the Dune books that I particularly like uh, or the Saga of Seven Sons, and he churns those out like crazy. He's a professional writer. That's all he does. So he churns them out fairly quickly with a consistent level of quality. Uh, For those particular stories or for those particular sagas that he's writing in, I don't think necessarily that we could say that just because something is written quickly that it's bad. I mean, when I wrote my article for uh, the first article for Movie Magic Magazine recently, I was given the assignment essentially of here's what I would like you to write. And here you've got a couple of weeks to write it. And I sat down one morning and in about the span of about two, two and a half hours, hammered out the entire thing. Granted, it's only 2,200 words, but hammered out the entire thing and sent a draft off to him immediately. And now it's just a matter of tweaking it a little bit with last edits before it officially gets turned in. It's a question of the writer and the filmmaker and the special effects people, their ability to work under pressure and maintain a quality level. There's a danger, sure, that if they move quickly or they move with a set end point in mind without being able to move it if if production has problems – yeah, it could be a problem. That's a danger, but I don't think that necessarily means we're going to get a substandard product. It's all a question of who happens to be behind the scenes making it happen.
1: Yeah, and I think you know a good chunk of that too is is the whole way journey to the Force Awakens was the first announced. You know, it was like oh, twenty books. You know, it, it, then to find out that it was only about six or seven that really are going to be you know adult type books or the books that we kind of typically think of. Uh, you know, then it made it a little easier to swallow. But there, I think it's inescapable now that we've got films going that we're going to get some books each year that are going to be the lead in projects. Uh, you know, it just seems to be the always norm with everything with movies to a degree. Uh, you know, uh, Disney's really good with marketing. So, I mean, the question there comes into how many of these type of books are going to be the small sticker books, kids books kind of things. And how much of those are going to take the gaps of the adult style books that we were used to getting. Um, you know, I mean, there were some years where we got more books than others, but I, I know, you know, when, when they first announced this, I was thinking, Oh, well, are we already getting these 20 books? We're, we're like, air to the air to the Jedi? Was that part of those 20 books? And then we found out, Oh no, all 20 of these books are dropping September 4th. And, then it was like, wow, that's a lot of bugs. So I had a few different reactions to the news uh, as the details came out as well. So, uh, you know, it, it does seem like now we get our news in bits and starts. Uh, there's not very big, huge press release documents, you know, where you can go back and be like, well, it states right here that this is, you know, it, it, it's just weird. So now we're all reacting to the things. And then, you know, you get a little bit more a day or two later in another article and you're like, oh, oh, well, that doesn't sound as bad as that article made it sound. Oh, OK. OK, I could take that. You know, I, I don't know. It, I think it's part of the nature of fandom in general, though.
2: And if you're really speaking about the tie in products, what gets me is the previous tie in products for The Force Awakens. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've seen the movie Ray and I don't see what a blind black guy who can play the piano has anything to do with this character that might be the daughter of, of Luke. So. I
0: have a problem right there. Hey there, Mark and Nathan, this is the long one. And if looking at the other audio feedbacks I've sent in recently, that scares you, it should. It occurred to me today, after reading another one of those why it's silly to be bothered by the whole Star Wars Legends thing articles, all the facilities of Camino, or as I prefer, a mountain full of Sparty cylinders, couldn't turn out more perfect clones of the standard talking points that have proliferated the internet since this Legends announcement came down. And I think that these quickly formed and long persisting urban legends, pun intended, need to be dispelled if there's going to be any meeting of the minds or reunion of fandom. The average article uses tactics that generally feel like they're saying, look kid, I know that you really loved your grandma and you're sad that she's dead, but I'm looking back at her life and uh, I think she was kind of a skanky witch. So, you know, just stop loving her, get over it. You didn't really lose that much because she was a terrible person. Just wipe your tears and get on with life. I thought the defender of the EU and the Count that knows those two continuities so well might want to take a moment to refute these common misnomers that seem to be the stock comfort offered to EU mourners, which usually only lead to further divisiveness. The first common point that I see is that the EU was generally poor to begin with. The authors of these articles or posts seem to remember the EU as being composed entirely of the Marvel Star Wars comics run, the original, that is, and the Crystal Star. Maybe throw in the Holiday Special. That was the EU. Silly, dumpy stuff. Often lampooning culture. Why would you miss that when that's all there was? Now, of course, I happen to like the Marvel Star Wars run, but we'll treat it as if it's as leprous as some fans view it for the purposes of this discussion. It may be that we look back with equally unrealistic judgments, seeing the Zane Kerrick arc of KOTOR, Thron Trilogy, and X-Wing novels as emblematic of the EU, and forgetting some of those goofier moments. But I think it's safe to say that any EU fan would maintain that the goofier moments were the exceptions rather than the norm. That there were quality stories from New Jedi Order to the Kyle Katarn stories to the aforementioned novels and comics, Dawn of the Jedi, all kinds of fantastic stories that are being ignored or glossed over, simply forgotten in this, well, look, there's a seven-foot rabbit. You really weren't losing much, were you? Secondly, a number of these articles state that it was never really canon to begin with, or that George Lucas didn't consider it canon. Now, I dealt with my opinion of Lucas's opinion in a separate feedback, but this additional charge that the EU was never really canon in the first place is very irksome especially i'm sure to those who follow nathan's work since we know quite a bit about the different levels of canon the star wars timeline and the way that everything fit together star wars was a unique franchise in that regard and yes those things are no longer a part of the official canon and yes even when they were george lucas reserved the right to override them with the creation of new products. But that does not mean that they did not still have an official canon status. Thirdly, numerous people try and soften the blow by saying other franchises have to deal with reboots all the time. Star Trek fans have dealt with this. DC Comics fans have had to deal with this and really bringing up the mess that has become the repeated reboots of the DC Universe since Crisis on Infinite Earths as a positive example, you can already tell your argument's in trouble. This once again ignores the uniqueness of Star Wars as a franchise. Yes, other franchises have rebooted, especially their expanded or tie-in continuities, several times. The fact is that Star Wars was sold to us always as one continuity an ongoing storyline that ideally would never be affected because there wasn't going to be a 7, 8, and 9. The fact that other franchises have had to deal with reboots is not really any comfort to Star Wars fans since they were promised that this was the one that was going to be different. This wasn't going to get rebooted. This wasn't going to conflict willy-nilly. This was going to be a single, ongoing storyline as real as any history in their history books. That, for me, was the major attraction. That was why I got into the Star Wars universe, because it was all one. It all connected. It all fit. The expectation for that was there, and that is why the reboot, or loss of that continuity, hit so hard, simply because we were led to expect otherwise. And the last get-over-it point that is very commonly made is that the expanded universe contradicted itself all over the place already. You're not really losing anything because it was a sloppy mess and now they're going to make it right. I think this is revisionist history of the worst sort. I think you could look at Star Wars continuity in three eras, from the release of the original trilogy up to the day before The Phantom Menace came out being the first era in which the occasional Conflict of continuity was the rare exception rather than the rule. Carefully retconned, consistent as it could be when factoring in some of those early materials before they set the standards in place, and overall singularly cohesive. Secondly, from 1999 all the way up through the start of the Clone Wars, in which cracks began to emerge, especially in the events leading up to Revenge of the Sith, and the continuity did grow a little looser. But this was not the fault of the expanded universe, rather, something externally grafted on by the creation of the prequels. They brought the conflicts in, while the EU was the one that ended up losing out because the films trumped the novels, comics, etc. The expanded universe was not at fault for creating those conflicts. And the third period, the modern period, certainly expands on that a thousand fold with the Clone Wars coming in like a wrecking ball, as you've repeatedly referenced on the show. Once again, yes, the continuity wasn't holding together so well in those last few years, at least in the pre-A New Hope period, but that was entirely the fault of the new official Lucas products that were coming in and overriding what had been established, not an expanded universe that was sloppily written or inconsistent. To attack the EU as having been a slovenly mess that didn't hold together continuity is to me an intellectually dishonest dodge, not true of the post-Return of the Jedi expanded universe that most of us are talking about in relation to the Episode 7 issues these days. And certainly not true of the expanded universe, except to the degree in which new films and new shows created those conflicts. Not inherent to the EU, but falling onto the EU due to external sources. So these four points, that the EU was generally of poor quality, that it was never canon to begin with, that it's rebooted just like other franchises, no big deal, and that it never really matched in the first place, overlapping and contradicting itself commonly, are just not true. And I would love to hear you elaborate on that if you agree. Or uh, correct me if you think I'm wrong and these common points are in fact valid ones. Perhaps with these stock devaluations out of the way, the two halves of fandom can start to have a meaningful dialogue.
2: To those points, uh, I can approach this a lot of different ways. To the whole point of uh, well, the expanded universe, Well, it was always just of poor quality in the first place. Uh, when they reference things like the Marvel stuff, as opposed to referencing the really strong storytelling that we got with, say, the X-Wing books and the Thrawn trilogy and that sort of thing. Uh, it reminds me, again, if I may quote Julius Caesar, that great line, The evil that men do lives after them. The good is often turred with their bones. There's a tendency to sort of do, as as he said, sort of revisionist history on the quality of something or the traits of something based on your own perspective once it's gone. To either justify your lament that it's gone or to justify your excitement that it's gone, right? Uh, To reference back to that same Glenn Beck program episode that I was talking about with Sinek in there about leadership and trying to see the different points of view, uh, he brought in a rabbi who is a fairly liberal rabbi, has a very different perspective also than Bex does, who makes the interesting comment that usually in American politics, we aren't seeing fair comparisons. Usually when you're talking about what one side sees versus what the other side is doing and so forth, it's, I'm going to compare my side at its best to your side at its worst and pretend that's a fair comparison of our points of view. When, of course it's not. Right, you need to look at the best outcome possible of both sides and see how it works, or the worst. It needs to be a fair, intellectually honest comparison. I think that's what's happening here. Is instead of it being a fair evaluation of saying this is where the EU was great, uh, the Revenge of the Sith novelization, the Stover effect, great. This is where the EU was very poor, uh, uh, ruins of Dantooine, Darth Vader in the Ninth Assassin, or lack of plot, as we often call it. They're not getting that kind of fair comparison. They're not looking at it objectively. They're they have a Point of view, they have an ideology, they have a worldview, and they're going to shape the facts that they give you based on it. That is why I, whenever I did still have cable, I wouldn't just sit there watching all Fox News, all MSNBC, all CNN, because they're all going to be slanted in one way or the other in their coverage based on the point of view of the person reporting it, the person doing the commentary show, or the ideology behind the network itself to a degree. Um, and I know I say that also saying that I'm a Beck viewer, but I would like to think that I'm clear-minded enough that are the things that I really agree with and really don't agree with, but I find it an interesting discussion that is willing to take the approach and bring in the other points of view and uh, and challenge some of these longtime ideas. But you don't see that a lot with the EU being gone reportage, Reportage, I suppose it's the word. Uh, as for the idea that it was never canon, well, you know, it again, it depends greatly on one's point of view. It was never canon. Canon, per se, in that it was never equal on par with the films, but the term canon was thrown around so incredibly loosely that we can't really use that as the It Was it ever the official continuation that we were told was going to be the real deal? Yes. Was it ever the official continuation in the eyes of Lucas himself? No. I think that was made clear often, but only if you were paying attention. So in this case... Again, they're trying to pick and choose the way that they want to look at it. They go with the side that says it was never true in Lucas's eyes and ignore the fact that Lucas' film itself had it as the official continuation. Whereas, though, to be fair, someone who's a big EU fan, who's not being intellectually honest, will make the argument that it was always canon, this was always the real deal, it was Lucas who was wrong in his view. It's just two simultaneously existing different points of view. The reality of the situation is the two existing, not one versus the other. Uh, As for reboots, Star Wars hasn't undergone a reboot until now. And yes, that is a big deal, unless you want to count it as a reboot in 1991, but not really because they eventually worked in the old Marvel stuff and Del Rey stuff and whatnot. But I don't know. There is a part of me that says still that a reboot is better than shattering things constantly. As you said, it was not the EU's fault when the prequels were made that certain things got messed up and had to be retconned and whatnot. That was Lucas's fault, per se, coming in with his new ideas. He allowed Lucasfilm, through its licensees, to start filling in the gap of the Clone Wars that he himself had made off-limits for a long time. He removed it from being off-limits, let them create what they wanted, then came in and said, screw it, I'm going to do it my own way, and shattered the crap out of it, which, yeah, it's the blame gets laid directly at his feet. However, Because of his position in the hierarchy of Star Wars and as the creator and such and as that default perspective that put G-Cannon above everything else, barring in a few instances where Lucasfilm was allowed to tweak things here and there, the default loser was always the EU. It was always Legends that was going to lose out and just had to find some way to fix it. For those who argue that it was never consistent, yeah, that by itself is not a a cohesive argument for never being consistent because it was consistent until Lucas came in and started playing in the sandbox again, but there were inconsistencies here and there. I think someone, it's just as disingenuous to say that it was always consistent as to say it was never consistent, but I think there's more evidence towards it being consistent because the efforts were made to make it happen. Yes, there were errors that would happen, but they would go in with retcons and try to fix those errors to maintain that, that credibility. It's not that the wall was being made up of bricks that kept constantly falling out of place and you never actually got a wall. It's that you had a wall being built up and every so often a brick would come loose and they'd have to come in and mortar that sucker back in there. There was a hole. It just wasn't necessarily a perfect hole and nothing will ever be when it has that many hands in the pot, you know, or that many cooks in the kitchen putting the thing together. So yeah, I mean, it's it's a frustrating thing to see how it's being reported But I think we just got to keep in mind that the people who are writing them are not being intellectually honest about it. And I take that kind of for granted. I do not think that you will tend to get articles about President Obama by Sean Hannity that are entirely intellectually honest. I do not think you will see articles about the Bush administration by Rachel Maddow or Ed Schultz that will be particularly entirely intellectually honest. It would be rare to see that because they have their own particular perspectives and they're shaping the facts that they give you and the perspective that they give you based on that worldview. But as long as we keep that in mind and treat it the same way as we treat any other source that may have a bias, then generally it doesn't bother me. I just am able to dismiss it and say, this person's not being intellectually honest. Their perspective is skewed. I can't put too much too much a a bias into it I recently in one of my jobs I'm a virtual I'm called the lead virtual coach I oversee the people who oversee these online courses for new teachers and I am very verbose as you have probably noticed from the show and I was basically told that for various reasons one because it just makes it easier to digest if you can put things in quicker bullet points to have people be able to read things you know in their busy day and two because that program is basically under HR or talent management, basically human resources, that you really ought to be very succinct because someone who is a disgruntled employee can turn around later and hang you with you know one sentence taken out of context. You don't want to give them too much ammunition, try to be very succinct. For those reasons, I was instructed essentially to try to modulate my style of speaking in emails to the virtual coaches to make it more straightforward, to make it more pithy, more succinct, and in doing so, to be more sort of managing rather than coaching per se. And I recently had a couple of people respond basically saying, You sound like a dick. One uh I had to get onto because she can she was screwing something up repeatedly. And it's well, you can maybe try to be less combative in the way you email when it wasn't really combative. It was just short. Uh and then because of that, I asked people in a recent newsletter type thing I sent out, hey, you know, or I didn't really ask, I just said, Just so you know, I'm not trying to offend people. I'm not trying to be short with people. I do tend to need to talk this way. It's something that I've been working on, so it's more easy to digest, blah, blah, blah. And I got an email back from somebody who was like, you know, actually, it was the tone of your first emails that caused me to lose faith in this entire thing and say, screw it. That's why I'm not coming back next year. Now, interestingly enough, neither of these people were people who were invited to come back next year because of their job performance. And they said this almost immediately after learning they weren't being invited to come back. So there's part of me that has to say, I can't take this personally. There may be some truth to what they're saying, but these are also people who are probably pissed off right now and disappointed because they feel rejected in one form or another. I should let that context guide how I read this. I think we have to take the context of what may be going on on the other side of the screen for these people writing these articles about the EU and maybe misrepresenting the facts to a degree to fit their own view, their own perspective, their own feelings, their own elation at its loss before we really put too much stock in it. And, and keeping in mind also that, let's face it, internet journalism is only journalism in the flimsiest sense um, because anyone can get on and post whatever they want without actually bothering to look into the facts of a given situation. And once it hits social media, it spreads. And again, perception may be more important then reality. They can spin this line of BS, tell that lie often enough, and to some, it will become the truth. Wow. Rant on truth versus falsehood that wasn't intended. (laughs) Well, you
1: know, when you think about the EU being generally poor, when people say that, you know, it's, they're definitely focusing on the negatives. I mean, I think of the New Jedi Order, and it's like, if if a person can't get over the fact that Chewie dies in the first book, they're never going to get to the really good stuff later on. They're just going to refuse it. Based on that one thing. Um, so, you know, the EU's always been hit or miss. So it, it, it's the same as that it was never canon. You know, it's, it too is the timeless tale of woe. There's so many conflicting comments that, that could back both stances there. It's the, the front of the quarter and the back of the quarter can't agree that they're both one. You know, I mean, it's, it's just, it's one of those things that when we've been around in fandom for, I say about a decade, you know, you've seen enough. Of those type of comments, if you've been researching it back when Legends was called the EU still and, and, and that time, you would, you would come to see the, the conflicting statements and stuff. And when George would talk about tears and, and then you'd have, uh, Leland Chi talking about canon levels and you'd see things like quotes in official canon unquote. Uh, you know, things like that. You're just, I don't know. It it just all started to create this nebulous picture that really made things confusing. And for a long time, I used to say, you know, we need an essential guide to what is canon. And then we got the reader's companion. Uh, and even in that, you know, it, it kind of gave us that sense that they were two universes. Pablo was, was mentioning it then. Uh, so it's you know, I, I kind of wonder how seeded it was at that point. Um, if they were going that direction or not. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention though, uh, was the reboot you know I, I it's an odd thing for it because at least legends wasn't reboot you know it was cast aside and canon was reboot uh, and that was a very unique thing within star wars is because canon you know the, the product itself the franchise wasn't reboot just the backstory that went along with it and that wasn't you know, it didn't cease to be, as we all know. I mean, it was literally just cast aside. So it was—it's—it's it's an odd reboot, as was, funny enough, the the Trek. I mean, it was—it was not even a reboot in itself because they followed their own internal logic. So it's—it's—it's it's, it's an odd, you know, odd place for Star Wars to be in a reboot, non-reboot scenario.
2: Now, to that, he does add in a separate email, uh, just to paraphrase it here, that it doesn't really come off very clearly in his emails. He is loving Rebels, and it's really helped to keep his fandom alive as a lifeline, as he calls it, of what he recognizes as Star Wars amidst an increasingly foreign franchise. So you want to make sure that that was in context. He's not entirely negative on the new perspective, just skeptical uh, in many respects, of course. Andrew, thank you very much for sending in the information. You're sending in your thoughts, um, obviously, that was a lot of information, but I think it made for some pretty good food for thought, uh, as will our next episode when we hear an audio form from Alexander Kell, who sent in quite a few bits of his own thoughts that we're going to build into an episode of their own.
1: Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division at www.starwarsreport.com episodes are also available on zoom stitcher and on itunes which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it you can also find links to our episodes on both our twitter and our facebook pages at sw beyond films or just type in star wars beyond the films in the search bar hey but no matter how you get there be sure to like our facebook page it's one of the best ways to interact with us our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU slash Legends questions, or you want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at swbeyondfilms at Warsfanworks.com Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Star Wars report, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars expanded universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate. Because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you.
2: And don't quote us the odds that this will become the norm. Episodes of feedback that take so long for us to actually do that they wind up including, well, one person's many, many instances of feedback. we got to get better at feedback timing.
1: <laughs> or three hour episodes of the norm.
2: where you really need to be careful of okay you know are you exactly accurate in your movement because this couple of and i'm sorry cat you're gonna have to move somewhere because i can hear you purring and i'm sure the microphone can i'm sorry <laughs> it feels like questions either go unanswered or question i'm gonna have to keep the email up because of the because we got to read the emails. yeah uh, he says in an email entitled post can you hear the cat purring or not? I don't know him, I'm not hearing him at the moment. Okay, she's like down by my feet. She went right back to where she was. <laughs> and doing the same thing. Oh,
1: well, you've got your own little engine. I
2: guess, okay. Now, maybe that isn't how it's really going down. But first, I need to scroll, and the cat's purring is just, it's just, it's, it's, it's my groove, man. <laughs> Sorry, cat, but you're not my groove. To pave the way for a new movie hopefully it'll be that <sighs> my headache is just throwing off my reading so between the cat and the headache this will be fun edits and didn't really play a larger role in the tapestry of the prequels as a whole <sighs> killing me killing me just in case that were to come around and here goes the cats deciding to be <laughs> out of each other stop it <laughs> The Death Star has been destroyed. Rumors are flying that the imp... God damn it. When I come to it with a neutral respect... When I come to it with neutral res... God. <laughs> it's like it's trying to censor me before I even cuss. Uh, it was a great place to build discussion, but certainly not something you're going to hear on every podcast, at least not in the reasoned way of being able to talk about it. Also for Mark. And now the cat is walking behind the blinds, and they're going clackety clack. Can you hear the clackety clack?
1: Surprisingly, no.
2: <laughs> this cat is killing me. That's why when I rec- recorded in my room, I could, you know, close. Oh, and he just gave me the stink eye. He poked <laughs> his he-, he poked his head out through the blinds and gave me the stink eye. <laughs> yes, we're talking about you. That a number of people dismissed as impossible to make managed to sink in there. Oh, mother. <laughs> there could be good people who want (sighs) rule hopefully you can't hear the cat going in the other freaking room I think, shut up even if it's not actually, stop it (laughs) I heard him that time mighty mighty me headache like, okay, my hands, my hands, my hands, my hands, my hands. Okay, can I hit this first? Yeah. Oh, holy. I turned the the, the, micro, the speakers back up when I plugged the earphones in going, I can't hear anything. It's like,
1: mm-hmm. holy. On the Star Wars Report websites, Airborne 2nd Division. On the Star Wars. <laughs>
2: okay.
1: Okay. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes. Oh my god, I know you have to hurry, so now I can't talk.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, I'm not angling for another Andrew feedback episode here. Just because I send you a heck ton of stuff doesn't mean you actually have to use it all. So, um, as I said, I'm going to try and make it modular so you can use only what you want to, or feel free to use none of it. I'm really not so much of a narcissist that I require... Uh, everything I record to be included. I say that, that's probably not actually true, and I feel a little bit of my soul die inside every time that it's not, but you know, gotta be a grown up.